Cool. Everybody talk real quick. Hello, 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 hello. hello Guess hello, what time hello, it is? Hello. Check Gibson's it out. Almost. We have no onions, but we'll have to use these. What? <laughs> Are you okay? What was that? You having a stroke? This is Four Friends Fight About Film, a podcast about movies and things more important than movies, if we ever find any. Hmm. All right, we are back for the third episode of our third season, and today we are talking about our favorite guilty pleasure movies. Those are movies that you love, but you uh, you know they're just not good movies, or at least you don't want to brag about liking them for one reason or another, maybe depending on who you're hanging out with and if you have three friends who fight with you about movies. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to brag <laughs> about how you like room? other movies? No. Like, oh, I like this movie. <laughs> I mean, sometimes. <laughs> you think Lance, Have you listened to this podcast? Gibby's pointing at Lance. <laughs> Why? What did I do? Uh, you, you like movies. Yeah. You I'm do. sorry. You're boastful Crime. about what you this, like. Is this the right boastful. show for that? Yeah. So He's got shirts off. with movies on it. <laughs> <laughs> that will be the first of many insane comments Gibby makes today. <laughs> <laughs> to kick us off, say your name in a non-film guilty pleasure. Uh, this is Lance. I would say my intense racism. <laughs> no. This is kind of a hard one because anything that is a guilty pleasure, I probably don't want to talk about. Yeah, on you show. don't feel guilty about the racism. No, um, I feel good about that. Um, no, I, I don't know. I have this kind of obsession with true crime. It's kind of, I mean, uh, yeah. that's not a weird one, but it's like, pretty weird. I mean, it, a lot it, of people have it. But yeah, a lot yeah. of adults have it, but it, also it, a lot of serial killers have it. Yeah, it's just a strange thing to love. I don't yeah. know why I love it so much or why so many people do, but it's kind right. of a big thing right now. I yeah. love it too, but I don't feel guilty at all. Uh, my name is Hudson. I'm going to go with uh, Taco Bell. I could eat Taco Bell every meal, every day. And, and uh, well, maybe not feel guilty about it, but I would feel guilty telling people. I think you, would, you yeah, wouldn't you'd... feel good. Yeah. <laughs> you feel something about it. <laughs> my name is Jordan. I don't feel guilty about any pleasure, but people tell me a lot that I should feel guilty about loving when Maroon 5 gets funky. <laughs> <laughs> and I do. Yeah, I agree. Oh yeah, I think you should feel guilty about some of the things you hate. Like what? What were some Ooh. of the things we talked about? Like was it you hated? Was it Charles Dickens? Charles Dickens. Oh yeah, Dickens sucks. And oh, uh, gum. Was it gum? Bubble gum? Oh, gum is awful. <laughs> it's weird. I don't feel guilty about any of those things. You have guilty non-pleasures. Yeah. Well, and I take great pleasure in hating those things. <laughs> this is Kyle KG Gibby. And uh, one of my guilty Sounds pleasures. like a men's clothing store. <laughs> <laughs> Come to Kyle KG Gibby. <laughs> Half off on shirts. Um, I love uh, boy bands. Who really? doesn't? From the 90s, 2000s, 20, 2010s. Oh, 2010s. Yeah. That's where we're getting into trouble. Uh, in yeah. fact, in the past year, I've seen both Justin Timberlake in concert and one Harry Styles in concert. And loved so both neither of them are a so boy low. band. Yeah. Well, they were members of boy bands. Wait, sure. you say, wait, the 2010s, is that when boy bands started to sell out? <laughs> well, not so much sell out as just get terrible. They actually uh, got better in 2010s. That's not true. Mm. Yeah, I'd argue they got better, too. Have you heard yeah. Bye Bye Bye? <laughs> uh, every night before I go to bed, that's uh, something go to sleep in your head yes. or <laughs> my headphones. Alrighty, we asked you guys on Facebook and Twitter to name some of your favorite guilty pleasure movies, and uh, we were overwhelmed. You guys have responded in droves, so thank you for doing that. Please keep it up. Although lots of you seem to name really awesome movies, uh, maybe some of them we'll get into. Here are some of the responses that we received. So Josh Rackley says, "Drumline." It's so bad. There's a lot of 
O's and but A's. But I can't stop watching it because I love the drum battles. I haven't seen this, but I have a feeling I would also love Drumline if I saw it. I remember <laughs> yeah. seeing the trailer and just like, like I don't know, like that's Do a you cool, need more cool than the trailer thing. for a movie like that? No, and you can also just you know YouTube, YouTube drum, battles. drum battles, yeah. right? Plenty of them. This is Ben Randall Morris. Batman Returns. Get over it. <laughs> it's so it's such a confusing comment. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's actually naming two movies there: Batman Returns and then also the Cisco vehicle. Get over it. Yeah. Or it's like he said, "Get over uh, it." After like he's already anticipating we're gonna disagree, and he's just telling us to get, get over, over it. it. I don't understand why a Cisco vehicle isn't called the the Thong movie. <laughs> Yeah, he's not actually the star. He's oh. like a supporting role. Okay, well, I'm still. assuming his only supporting role. I I kind of doubt it. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I accidentally just licked the screen in front of my mic. Gross, <laughs> gross. All right, um, I don't ex- I don't even know how that happened. I'm not even sure why your tongue was out. I can't either. <laughs> Guess talking about the thong song. <laughs> Katie Condon Aiken says, "Times of endearment. She's having a baby. Watchers in the woods and drum roll. The OG Pete's Dragon." Nothing wrong so, with that. So this is odd. Yeah. She lists an Oscar-winning movie, <laughs> and then two really good movies. Well, no, three really good movies. She's having a baby is a great movie. Watcher in the Woods, if you haven't seen it, was terrifying. As what a kid. is Watcher in the Woods? It's an old. It's one of those old Disney Betty movies. Baby. It was made in like the seventies uh, or eighties. It was yeah. actually released twice. They released it once and it didn't do well, and then they completely recut it and released it again about a yeah. year later. Yeah, then the original Pete's Dragon, I haven't seen it in a long time, but I loved it. Oh, man, yeah. loved it. I don't, she just has a lot of guilt. <laughs> yeah, she could have named any movie that she likes. She's <laughs> just a very guilt-ridden person. If you want your favorites read on the show, you can leave your comments at facebook.com slash fightaboutfilm or at fightaboutfilm on Twitter. So, what did you guys uh, consider going into this? I feel like everybody kind of has a different idea of what guilty pleasure means. Well, I don't believe in guilty pleasure. Here we go. I don't think that you should feel guilty <sighs> about things you take pleasure in. This well, was- and more importantly than that, I don't think that if you truly love something with real, actual love, that there can be any guilt involved. I could come up with some examples that you would probably not agree with that on. But, um. <laughs> yeah, but you didn't pick them for this episode. Instead, you picked three movies that well, was, are fairly well regarded. I was talking more about criminal behavior, but oh, yeah. Um, yeah, but do you think you can truly love that in a real love kind of way? Do. I don't know. I haven't done any of those things. See, you I don't no know. Idea. I don't know. None of us know. This was a but, topic. But movies, it's pretty yeah, silly. Agreed. This this was a topic I think that probably sparked the most debate between us, even just from a topic of what level. What it means? Yeah, what a guilty pleasure. I think Jordan and I had a particularly hard time with this because I think most of the movies we love are probably awesome. Well, well, most of all. Well, except for one. Little behind the scene magic here. Lance had suggested a movie, which is fairly terrible. And then he's like, oh, no, I hadn't seen it in here. I won't pick it. But part of me thinks he did that because Lance is Mr. Cinephile guy on the show. Well, the, so we, lot, I, think, I think Hudson was right, though. Well, we, all, we all have our roles. I'm the dumb one. Hudson's the sentimental <laughs> one. You're, you're the weird you're one. The and Lance is, yeah. the, Lance is the Mr. Cinephile. Listen to my movies. You can't talk about film if you don't we talk all, about Helen Brosberg. We all have different weapons, too. <laughs> <laughs> One of us has the katana blade. Um, I, this, was, this was a tough category, and I actually had to resort to Google. First, I had to figure out what the definition of this was, because yeah. that, that was hard for me up front. And I think we all did kind of disagree, and we'll probably get into that later. But I had to sort of define this as movies that I know are deeply flawed, or that some people would rightfully say are terrible, that I just connect with for some reason. Yeah. So I don't think any of the movies I picked are things I'd necessarily be ashamed to tell someone I like, but more that I recognize I'd probably have an uphill battle defending them with some people. Yeah. Mine are definitely movies that I watched and enjoyed, but would not 
not tell my friends that I enjoyed them yeah, because that's the way they I are embarrassing it. movies. Thank you yeah. for telling us. Yeah. Yeah. It's more that you need yeah, to change very your, vulnerable It's more for that me. you need to change your friend group. I basically picked ones that people have told me that I should feel guilty about choosing or that I should feel guilty about loving, but I refuse to. I'll say too, the timing of this episode was great for me. I had shoulder surgery last week and I was loaded up on Percocet and I needed to get through some of these movies, dude. You guys punished me on this episode. Thanks. Prep for this. Thank you. Lance likes the movie Sweet November. I just want you guys to know that. <laughs> and, and, and in protest of the there. three movies that Lance picks, I'm just going to pretend that he picked Sweet November for each one. You're just going to talk about that while I talk about something else. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and it's not the first also, time you would have done that. Also in Sweet November. <laughs> and for the record, Hudson is embarrassed to tell us that he likes these movies, but he doesn't feel guilty at all for making us watch them. <laughs> <laughs> he has a strange moral code. Sweet revenge. <laughs> yeah, all right, the, Lance, the, you want to kick us off with uh, number, number three there? I do. So most historians will tell you the Cold War between the United States and Russia ended on December 3rd, 1989, during a historic summit between George Bush and Mikhail Gorbachev. But true Americans know the Cold War really ended in 1985 when Rocky Balboa defeated Ivan Drago in a boxing ring, thus effectively bringing our two nations to peace. My first film is Rocky IV, the 1985 film written by, directed by, and starring Sylvester Stallone as the title character who must face his greatest fears when an unstoppable Russian boxer kills his friend Apollo Creed in the ring, and Rocky must avenge him. So when I picked this film, I hadn't seen it in over 20 years, and I figured I'd have one of two reactions. Either it was going to be just straight up terrible, or it would be great in a really tongue-in-cheek kind of way. And gentlemen, I'm here to tell you, I had no guilt with this movie. <laughs> I only had pleasure. I turned this movie on, and within minutes, I was 10-year-old Lance, the little patriot with an irrational <laughs> hatred of Russia, who was riveted by every frame and found myself on the verge of audibly cheering in the final scene. Were you extra riveted by all the freeze frames? <laughs> so <laughs> many. And montages. Oh, and man. It's, it's 80% montage. And it yeah. never... <laughs> It never bothered me. Like it's Stallone didn't know about montages We'd, before he. No, it's like they watched the first three movies and were like, you know what the best part of these movies are? The montage. Let's they do a whole movie yeah. of just ha- that. Oh, yeah. half, the, half the half the shots in this movie are just pulled or, from from the older movies. movies. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's like a clip show of movie. It's a movie right. clip show. So <laughs> within the first eight minutes, there are three freeze frames. Mm-hmm. Twelve minutes, we get a fourth. Twenty minutes, five. It's pretty much every minutes, scene six. transition. Yes, it's the way that yeah. they transition yeah. in those <laughs> scenes. I eventually lost count. I just could I could not keep up anymore. And Spoiler alert, it ends with a freeze frame. Yeah. Hey, what's just a freeze frame thing, you know? It's, 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 yeah, it's like he discovered it's it finally. And and usually if a movie has a freeze frame, it's the final shot. Not, right. Not four times in the first eight minutes. So there were a couple of things that really surprised me revisiting this. And obviously there was a lot that I missed as a kid, which at the time was, to me, this movie was just a good guy versus bad guy story and kind of a rah-rah go America movie. But watching it as an adult, this film deals with some surprisingly fascinating themes. Two boxers who are coming to terms with what it means to enter the twilight of their career, our ability to transform and become different people in our lives as we age and even on a global level between countries and then having to balance our pursuits of what drive us with our responsibilities. Also, the over the top patriotism is more nuanced than I remember is it doesn't really treat Russians as this like villainous bloodthirsty country that I remembered. It sort of extends an olive branch and offers hope that the two nations can work out their differences and even 30 plus years later knowing how that conflict turned out it's still a moving sentiment. I'm not sure that Russia received it in that way though. Oh, I'm sure they they watched the movie. Oh, they watched it. (laughs) Yeah, I was surprised of that too of the kind of a uh, heavy theme running throughout it the Rocky does this kind of monologue early on where he's like we are who we are and we can't change yeah. and then in the final scene basically as change. as he's fighting the audience starts cheering for him because yeah. he's like standing up and like going the distance and he does that whole speech at the end he's like what I'm trying to say is that if I can change and you can change we can change Everybody should change! Каждый может измениться! 
I found it, it was a really kind of great kind of message. And what was surprising yeah. was it wasn't changing because Americans are good and Russians are bad. It was changing because he said, I hated you two when I first walk, walked in here and you hated me and we learned to stop hating The band, you two. Yeah, you two. Yeah, you two. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. Um, but thematically, this movie is very tight. Yeah, like, and, I, and that really very, shocked me. And, and very kind of a, a story about empathy. And I mm-hmm. noticed the character of Rocky is really kind of the most empathetic character, the way he talks to people. Because mm-hmm. he does this language where he's kind of fumbling all the time, but he does this thing where someone will say a line and he'll repeat the line back to him, which is kind of like you do with like marriage therapy. And he does this a lot throughout this movie. He's this kind of ultra empathetic guy. Right. So the, the, a couple of points here I want to make. The scene where Apollo dies is traumatic. Oh. So I, I was watching this movie with my girlfriend. We actually had to stop the movie because she got so upset. And, and I, I, I'm <laughs> serious. Dude, I, but I was glad she wanted to stop it because it, it really bothered me. I mean, just it's watching brutal. him get... It's awful. I mean, I, I don't remember it being... I mean, I remember being hard when I was a kid. I thought it'd be kind of, you know, whatever now. But man, it really affected me. Mm-hmm. I want to talk too about the the robot uh, <laughs> that Rocky gets Polly for his birthday. Happy birthday, Polly. It's, it's this weird hybrid of 80s robot, but also it's a technology that I don't even think we it's have well now. It's well advanced. Yeah, yeah. Sure we do. It's both primitive and advanced <laughs> at the same time. What the hell is this? Your present. Yo, I wanted a sports car for my birthday. Not no walking trash can. Oh, come on. He looks great here. He's extremely psycho, Rocco. Well, since you don't have any friends, we thought you'd like it. Yeah, pretend you're happy. Well, you'll keep your company when you're all alone. And at some point, Polly actually programs it to be a woman <laughs> who somehow serves him. It's pretty creepy. And it was odd. There's another element of this movie that was the whole steroid and illegal drug thing. Yeah. It's, it's handled very strangely. So it's mentioned in a press conference, quickly brushed under the rug, and then in one of the 20 training <laughs> montages, we see him getting injected, and it kind of it kind of changes the whole movie in a way. But then they sort of throw it away. It's like, no, wait, they, this dude. Nobody talks about yeah, it. This dude's yeah. been cheating yeah, the whole time. Back, yeah. Killed someone because yeah. he's on steroids and yet we're still just led to believe no he's just really tough like, no, <laughs> right. this, this whole thing is a fraud. Yeah. I, I was disappointed that they put the cheating thing in there. because I, I, I was too. It felt like yeah. a, like an yeah. unnecessary jab at Russia to make them seem exactly. worse. And that would have exactly. been such an easy cut. Like, it didn't have to be. I wanted to even wonder if they added it afterwards or something. That yeah, was odd. In this actual fight, Rocky takes more punches in the first round than I have ever seen in all the boxing yep. matches <laughs> yep. in real life boxing in my life. And by the end of the fight, looks fairly okay after <laughs> yeah. the whole thing. Oh, yeah. Standing in the ring, talking, giving his it, inspirational speech. Right. Yeah. That's kind of one of the funny things about Rocky. That's just It's kind of a given when you watch these movies. If you've ever seen a real boxing match, one of those punches ends the match. Right, yeah. Uh, this, this <laughs> it happens it. round after round. Right, but, but you've never seen a boxing match with actual Rocky in it. <laughs> right, true. But one of the things I love thematically about this, too, the, the Rocky arc over the series of films is interesting because in the first one, it's all about his heart. You know, that's what's driving him. And then in the next two movies, he kind of becomes a legitimately good boxer and it kind of undercuts the point of the first film mm-hmm. and in this movie he kind of has to go back to that and that's ultimately why he beats the Russian because the Russians all physical prowess mm-hmm. Rocky's all about heart and the Russians never face someone who wanted it worse than he did right. yeah. and that was really cool yeah. real quick do they explain so they show up in Russia and all of a sudden there's this guy they're living with who looks like a World War II resistance fighter <laughs> and they don't explain who he is at all and he's just like I don't know the housekeeper or something I, they, they're surrounded by strangers like these two KGB guys yeah. following him around <laughs> right. Never makes a lot of sense. There's one in particular where when Rocky first goes out to train for the first time in the snow, it cuts to this shot of one of the guys, like care keepers or whatever, um, lifting binoculars. Yeah. And then it hard cuts to 
the same shot but zoomed in of him raising the binoculars and then it hard cuts <laughs> to an even closer up shot of him raising the binoculars over it's and the over. same shot three or four times in it's a row hot. just closer up it's like are they spying on his training I, well, I don't get what they were doing I mean in in plain sight but I was wondering if there was something I was supposed to be taking from that no, that, and, I, that I just couldn't and the answer is no <laughs> I don't think so uh, I, I want to start a new segment on this show called Girlfriend Quotes oh um, <laughs> that th- funny things my girlfriend none of us, ever none of us three of us none probably of us don't need it. three yeah. of us don't need a girlfriend um, quote section. Two, two quotes she, she had while watching this maybe one was looking at Drago uh, his skin is so shiny all the time which it is he looks like a porcelain doll yeah, this movie. yeah. and the other one was and this gets back to what we were saying her, she goes halfway through she's like so is this movie just a series of montages oh it is I was like good yes, observation babe that's exactly what it is it is I mean, and you were talking about how tight the script is mm-hmm. but when you only have 10 minutes out of 90 of <laughs> right. narrative storytelling it's, it's got to be pretty tight true uh, did you know that Charlize Theron <laughs> turned down the role of Evelyn in Pearl Harbor to star in this movie. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> the the chronology of this doesn't work. Yeah, how old was Charlize Theron in sweet November 2001? Oh, he's giving a sweet November trivia. Uh, sweet trip, yeah. November. Oh, there he goes. This is going to be a thing. All shows. None of there us know goes. what that movie is. I, know. I never even heard of it. <laughs> sorry, audience. Yeah. <laughs> all right, my number three guilty pleasure. I guess we could say my first guilty pleasure of the evening is Soul Surfer. The true story of surfer Bethany Hamilton, a teenage girl living in Hawaii who became a professional surfer after losing her arm in a shark attack. So I first watched this movie years ago with my son and we immediately put it on to watch again as he was into surfing at the time and it was the type of movie I'm starting to enjoy as I get older where he relates to the kids in the movie and I start to relate to the parents, which makes me feel old, but it's a great kind of thing to watch. But with, you, you with know him. there are other ways to watch surfing. Like there's tons of footage of surfing it was it there. was new and we it came out Hang on, we how, watched it how old was your son when this came out it's probably like fifth or sixth grade okay so this is a film filled with bikini clad girls you oh, realize yeah. what yeah, he's he loved with. it yeah right <laughs> <laughs> So now that now that I've rewatched it for the show this week, I freely admit that this is a pretty terrible movie. The dialogue is mostly wretched. The faith-based parts are cringeworthy, but I love Hawaii. I love the beach. There's some decent performances here, most notably from the adults, including Dennis Quaid, Helen Hunt, and Craig T. Nelson. Which, let me mention yeah. a couple of the other stars in this. This movie, I think, is where 90s TV stars went to die. <laughs> Craig T. Nelson, Helen Hunt, Bobby Six Killer from Renegade, and Kevin, Kevin Sorbo. Sorbo. Yeah, this movie is kind of like porn for moms. It's Dennis Quaid, oh, Dennis Quaid and Kevin Sorbo with their shirts off the whole time while being really good dads. How buff. Oh, they're also true. super ripped. Yeah. Like, Dennis, oh, yeah. Quaid, they they scene where Dennis Quaid vacuums the laundry room and women everywhere. Oh, yeah. Dennis Quaid's rippedness made me really uncomfortable in this movie. Yeah. And I watched this like movie with my parents. He's, he's older than you are. At this point, yeah. And it doesn't make sense. With he looks he great. Yeah. Looks great. <laughs> Uh, so unfortunately this movie wasn't really streaming so I had to borrow the DVD from my teenage sister (laughs) (laughs) but uh, I'd never seen it it's one of her favorite movies and my family's favorite movies and you know what I didn't hate it and I admit about 70% of the movie I was choked up because they it does get get pretty emotional in the film quite often I thought that the main girl was really good so look there's obviously a message in this movie that people need to hear about perseverance and blah 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 pick better movies to watch I I just I think as a hardened cynic I kept not being able to connect with it the parts I actually connected with were in the middle of the movie where she just quit and was like this (laughs) like that that actually made sense to me there's a a couple of funny points but the girl who plays like the bad guy Uh was there so really evil. was there really a girl in in real life story who was because it's based on a true story? Yeah, yeah. Was there really a girl in life that was so callous and angry? No way that, yeah. that girl was Still a real person talking like trash to yeah. this girl Without who's just lost her arm. arm. Yeah. 
Um, one of the funny lines too was uh, during the competition, um, Bethany's board breaks. And the announcer says, well, a broken board puts Bethany in a tough position. I was like, no, I think that takes her out of the whole thing, buddy. <laughs> I love the announcers at each surfing thing. They just, okay. <laughs> okay. When I sat down to watch this with my parents, um, they'd already seen it and they love it. And we got a few minutes in and I think I was probably just shaking my head. And my mom says... Jordan, how can you discredit and criticize a true story? I, said, I mean, it's, it's easy, Mom. This movie's terrible. Well, it's not like you're saying this didn't happen. Yeah. I mean, that's not right. a true story. It's been told in a legitimate way. But I, I did have an interesting conversation with my parents when the movie ended, and my mom was talking about how much she loved it. And I said, I just said, Mom, I, I just I don't like to be forced to right. feel good. Yeah. Like, I, I feel good most of the time without it. I don't, don't make me feel good, and I don't need that kind of positivity in my life. Well, I mean, I, to me, it's just... There, Yes, it's a true story, but a thousand different directors could have done a thousand different interpretations. Oh, yeah. And I think all we're saying is this was not a very good interpretation. No, it's so cookie cutter. Right, it's so right. safe. Right. Well, and I wanted to talk a little bit about, so it really borders on faith-based drama without quite getting there. And I think it smartly focuses more on the sports side of it, which I would be willing to bet that this movie made more converts to surfing than it did to Jesus. <laughs> But or to I, sharks. <laughs> or to sharks. <laughs> but I actually liked what I had to say in terms of like sports and competitions and, and, and stuff like that, where they do the cliche thing that, oh, there's something more important than competition, but they don't ignore it either because this is what gives her life purpose right. is being in these competitions is what she loves to do. So I felt it was a little nuanced there more than it had to be. I, I will. I agree. I will say the one thing I, I did like about this movie was the thing that triggers her to get back into it felt realistic. Like, oh, like her it felt really realistic. They're here showing up at a beach in after Tahitian. I, I don't mean. I don't mean. I don't mean the little specifics. kids getting on the okay, surfing. Shut thing. up. Uh, yeah, that's, that's part of the true story. That all. Actually, that that all yeah. yeah, scratch that because it actually true. happened in reality. <laughs> no, but but the idea of her going to another country and seeing what a nightmare it was and yeah. her ability to help somebody there, whether I liked the movie or not, and even if they didn't handle it well, it was a realistic trigger to get her back into it because when she's yeah. done, she looks done. It she's was. Like, it yet. was. But then they do a voiceover in that segment. Oh where, yeah, where she says, "Who would have thought that it would take?" to another country and teaching right. a kid really to surf for me to learn what head. really matters. Yeah, they yeah. didn't have, and again, and that's the problem with the interpretation. They didn't have to say that. Like, that right. would have been so much better if it had just happened. Uh, the other thing I appreciate about this movie is that it almost sympathizes more with those around Bethany than it does Bethany herself. Yeah. She kind of goes through pretty much unaffected by mm. it. She's one breakdown, I think, and is generally happy. But I found it to be really realistic in that oftentimes those surrounding those who get hurt are the ones who hurt the most, especially for a parent who has to see their child suffer. They're going through so much more pain mm -hmm. and suffering right. than the actual There's kid There's a is. great, I thought it was a great scene where she first gets the bandage taken off and her mom, Helen Hunt's in there with her and then she tries to put on a strong face and then she goes out and talks to her, to Dennis Quaid and she's like, yeah, she's okay. Yeah. And then she said, are you okay? And she said, no, I thought that was very realistic. But you know what's not realistic? Is every time this movie got fairly emotional, Carrie Underwood would show up oh. and just ruin it. Yeah, pretty terrible. This is Carrie Sorry, Underwood's Carrie. film debut, which I'm hoping is also her finale because <laughs> uh, she's awful. She's pretty bad. Like you know, she has like, other talents that she can totally. Yeah, totally yeah you know, there's, how, a, there's a reason she's a multi-platinum <laughs> singer, dominate and not fields. a youth pastor right. or actor. You know how like religions love to claim celebrities? It's like being picked for a kickball game, and Scientology <laughs> is all like, "We'll take Tom Cruise," and Christianity is all like, "Oh man, we're stuck with Carrie Underwood, <laughs> Kevin Sorbo, <laughs> the last one chosen." 
cousin. I'm, I'm sure she's very sweet and she's yeah. a great. Sure singer. She's great. Yeah. Person. Love you, Carrie. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Jordan. Call me Care Bear. <laughs> All right. My number three has got quite a team behind it. Directed by Erwin Winkler, who produced Rocky Four, starring my beloved Sandy Bullock, who people hate and I don't understand why. Score by the amazing Mark Isham. Edited by Richard Halsey, known for Rocky and Eddie Scissorhands. Is that how you say that? Eddie Scissorhands? Yeah, that's sure. the exact title. Right. And the same writers as everyone here's favorite. Fincher's The Game. Wow. Yeah. So it's about it's this. It's not messing around. Did re- you say re- the title of the movie? Yeah, it's called The Net. Oh. And it's from. It's a, What's it's that a, short for? Uh, <laughs> I think Netscape. Interweb. Yeah, Netscape. <laughs> it's short for Interweb. Good one. Netscape 2.0. This summer, Sandra Bullock is caught in The Net. It's a tech thriller from the mid '90s about a reclusive hacker, but a good lady hacker. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she uses her hacking for good. Not you know, she's good because people keep telling her in the first seven minutes, "You're a genius." Oh well, yeah. she's well, just, probably, probably, Did you see her order that pizza? Yeah, she's she amazing. Ordered, yeah, she got plane tickets online. She can Who's do all sorts. Way of too attractive to play this role. No, the way that's it's not. That's not fair. There are plenty of attractive reclusive people. <laughs> we just don't like know. I've never, never seen, seen one. <laughs> So she's this good lady hacker, and because she's reclusive, her whole life is online. Nobody knows what she looks like or who she is. Which at this point, online meant like 20 websites. She was probably on the dark web. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot more. Did they have a dark web? All kind of underground. The dark web was first, Gibby. Okay. The web. And there's a big conspiracy to do some terrible things, and she gets caught up in it. And they, that a, didn't matter. A bad guy Great. boyfriend, and a lot of detailed. Well, I don't want to give away too much and spoil anything. <laughs> I've loved this movie since 1995. My mom loves this movie. It's just awesome. And I think I feel like a lot of the reason that people think that it sucks, and I'm sure that Lance will add to this greatly, but Why is that... Why won't we add to it? Because uh, I think Lance hates it more than you guys. Oh, yeah. I'm and you guys only it. watched half of it. <laughs> I've seen it all before. <laughs> yeah, 20 years ago. But I loved it Thank 20 you. years ago. I think a lot of the criticism now of it is just how dated the technology is. And the, the pizza ordering scene, it's like, well, duh. Although, I, well, you're right. The film but, has not aged well. Well, not in that way. Right. But the core issue in the film is this idea of our lives being online and our infrastructure being online and our financial everything like everything's yeah. online and it's it's, sti- it's, a, it's totally timely. at risk yes yeah. i mean it really really yeah especially with you know russian well she has this line where she's like they know where i live what i eat what i like to drink and i'm thinking that stuff we post online oh it's, by choice right. every it's, single day it's more it's infinitely more now it's right. more of a problem now than it was in 1995 yeah and so really this movie's kind of prophetic <laughs> you're just waiting <laughs> well no, I, look, I, fair points. I don't like this movie. I didn't really like it when I saw it 20 years ago. It, it came out at kind of the dawn of the internet before any real, anyone really understood what it was. So it's um, ahead of its time. It was yeah, well, time. yeah, it was, but I also feel like, I don't know, I'm, I'm not saying that like there there's nothing to be concerned about with internet security. I just think in general it turned out to not be that big a deal. Uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> do you not read the news? Don't. Yeah. What? what? What's happening that's such a nightmare? Internet security? Yeah. Like everybody's data is compromised. Yeah, you haven't like heard about all those things. What impact has that had on your life? People know your birthday now? Who cares? Well, lots no, of people have their identity stolen. Yeah, it's like a huge like problem. Exactly what happened. Not exactly, but very much what happened <laughs> yeah. to her. No, I get that. But even I look, I, I've had my. Yeah, because I've, it hasn't happened to the four people in this room doesn't mean it's an issue. But it's also not like things what? like that didn't happen before. I mean, like, like I've had my financial information stolen twice. I call the bank, they handle it. It's not that big a deal. I'm just 
just saying, I'm not, and I'm saying this stuff can't spin out of control. You can find some horror stories. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I don't think our lives are in a constant state of turmoil over this well, stuff. Well, no, and and most of the people in this movie, their lives weren't in a constant state of turmoil. True, but l- let's get past that for a second. I I think my issue with this movie is I just I didn't I never felt stressed out. I never felt that thrilled <laughs> by true. it. I was just kind of always, that, I was pretty relaxed the whole movie. I was there's like, a ah, scene on good, the boat good. where you could just yeah. sit back and enjoy it. That, that whole fight <laughs> scene on the boat is like the most inert and slow moving dramatic action scene I've well, seen in a movie in years. Oh. Yeah, let's talk about that a bit because so she's Jordan didn't really explain this but there's a guy kind of following her and he's probably not good news and they're on this date but at first in, he in seems Mexico. like well, yeah you don't know that he seems you like know that no that you know that they like set a, it up he's great they, dude they broadcast it he's pretty handsome. loudly so this is when you should know this is a bad guy though <laughs> they're walking on the beach and she's like ooh it's cold oh yeah he's wearing a sports yeah, coat yeah, instead of giving her a sports coat he pulls a handkerchief out of oh, his yeah. pocket and ties it around her midriff <laughs> yeah exactly but Less than a minute later, they fully expose him as the bad guy. So That's it's true. just right. a, a tiny little. He takes us like other handkerchief tease. off. That's a good silence yeah. around his gun too. Oh, well, yeah. and then the other thing that I didn't get was she's just been mugged, and then they get on a boat <laughs> and go out on the water in order for her to t- stitch his hand up or something. And then he's going to call the police after they've done all this, yeah, to, they go but can't call the reach police. them from the boat, so he has to go farther out in the water. <laughs> right. And I'm like, this girl She's is an dumb. idiot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, and isn't that the case a lot of times? Like, you're really smart in some fields and just Perhaps. totally vacant in yeah. other fields. She takes she her Takes I mean, her a long time to put things together. Yeah, to be fair to her character, she's an introvert and doesn't really interact with other humans. So I, could, yeah, I, I could see that. From a filmmaking perspective, I, I found some things about this movie interesting because I think it was one of the first times that directors had to grapple with how to make someone sitting at a computer alone interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. And the way they solve a lot of it is they just have her talk. What she <laughs> this girl talks to herself <laughs> constantly yeah. through yeah. this movie. I like Everything it. she types, she says out loud. And her well, computer reads really to her slow too. Well, when she is talking on the computer. Well, she's yeah. alone all the time so yeah. you know I'm not, I'm not criticizing it I'm, I'm just saying it was well. kind of an interesting problem they oh, had to no, probably definitely. face that for the first time Fair in film out. history you had to kind of deal with this definitely so what do you want in a man hmm. butch beautiful brilliant Captain America meets Albert Schweitzer Settle for a guy who puts the seat down. But I did what I did watch of this movie. I actually really enjoyed it. And I miss these kind of like 90s conspiracy movies mm-hmm. that I feel like we don't really get anymore mm-hmm. in that kind of way. The world's um, too serious now. Yeah. Yeah. But it was uh, not like you, Lance, you said it's not very tension filled. But like, <laughs> you said it's not very tension filled. It might be true, but it's still like fun. Oh, it's so much fun. I, I didn't really yeah. have tension to yeah. me is what makes it fun. And without the tension, I'm not having that much fun. It is me. I remember after watching this movie 23 years ago thinking Jeremy Northam was going to become a huge star. That didn't happen. Uh, Oops. No. The He's British the dude. dude. Yeah. Like, he is so good because he played good and then bad. <laughs> <laughs> He's got it all. Uh, I, I will say that the, the end of the ending of this movie is very disappointing. It, it just kind of she, she throws her AOL disc in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just kind of like I think that a lot of it is really smart and interesting. And in 1995 was a lot of things about computers that we didn't know. And then it, to end in like this physical altercation that's just stuffed with slow motion shots the end is kind of lame I'm 17 watching this movie in the theater and the scene where she orders a piece online blew my mind yeah. I was like are we gonna be able to do that one day <laughs> we do I've done it many times <laughs> so many times 
All right, KG Gibby. So one of the things I wanted to do in picking my movies was I wanted to pick a genre for each pick of of genres of films that I'm frankly embarrassed to say that I really like. Although if people listening to this probably know I already like these genres. So the first, you have a 20 minute intro <laughs> explaining these bizarre things about your picks every time. <laughs> Yeah, keep going. <laughs> so I, just, I just wanted to tell you that, and now I'm going to sit quietly yeah, and anxiously yeah. listen. Waste, waste even more time. So um, this is a very specific genre of mid-90s teen comedies. And so my number three pick was, well, you know, before we get there, let's let's pull back, this, let's pull back the curtain come. just a little bit. Somebody gave Gibby too some, much time uh, to prepare for this. <laughs> Moe's had plenty of time during lunch. Four friends fight about film, podcast, and magic. You know, typically in seasons past, in seasons one and two, process of picking a movie for an episode would go something like this. We'd have a theme well in advance, then each initially toss in about five to six movies, you know, sometimes eight, nine, ten Pixar movies, it doesn't matter, into a list, and then we'd pare it down about a week or so before recording. Well, something changed this season, and all of a sudden, three of the four friends at this table become super diligent about saying things like, Gibby, just pick a movie, just pick three, and making me do it like a month in advance, or, or two weeks, whatever. So like two and a half weeks prior to this recording, these guys are all up in my business again, making me drill down a list, and I knew two of my three movies movies that I wanted to pick, and the third was kind of up in the air, so I just put a movie down. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> one of the guys at this table is getting his shoulder surgery, decides, I'm going to watch Gibby's movie. He'll, he'll remain so anonymous. He <laughs> <laughs> I want to, so let me, for anyone who hasn't turned this off yet, uh, <laughs> let me point out two things here. One, we're, we're two or three minutes into the second. You still haven't said the name of your movie. Two, you're mad at us for your indecisiveness. You, well, put, you put this on the sheet, and I watched it. Right. That's how this also, is supposed you to work. held the power, Gibby. You held the power. All you had to do was not put down the movie. Is well, if I didn't put down the third movie, a guilty pleasure for you? We have to say the name yes. of your movie. <laughs> then, then that's why we're talking about it. It. So say the name of the movie. Well, all right. So my here's my third pick. <laughs> the 1995 hip team comedy Empire Records, directed by Alan Moyle, who also directed Pump Up the Volume, Hudson. Hells yeah, he did. It starred a whole bunch of young actors that people thought would be super great actors for the next 25 years, but they really weren't. Anyway, Empire Records is about one Two eventful them day. Some of them are. It's, well, some of them were in huge movies, I guess. Uh, it's about one eventful day in the lives of the employees of a big independent record store in some city somewhere. The store's <laughs> facing a potential sale to a corporate record chain. Who At one point, they say out. it's in the Midwest. And yet, in the beginning, Lucas rides his motorcycle to Atlantic, Atlantic city, city right? in the night, <laughs> gambles, drives all the way back. Yeah, yeah. odd. Lucas is pretty cool. I mean, he could do that. No, we'll get night. to that. Yeah, it, <laughs> <laughs> so this one day, the store's facing a potential sale to a corporate entity. There's a has-been rock star who's supposed to show up for an in-store concert, and one of the employees just stole a whole bunch of cash from the safe to go gamble it away. Mm-hmm. Stuff happens, sort of. But this falls into the genre of TG, very specific again, PG-13 90s teen comedies that I love. You know, She's All That, 10 Things I Hate About You, and The Best Can't Hardly Wait. Why I didn't pick that, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I actually <laughs> oh. haven't seen this movie in about 18 to 19 years, and I was kind of afraid to watch it again, especially after That's Lance... That's why your intro was so long. <laughs> <laughs> especially after Lance said he hated it, because he just didn't... I didn't want to ruin the nostalgia factor I had from watching it. See, this is a great example of Gibby feeling guilty because Lance didn't like it. So now he's <laughs> trying to backtrack. That's Gibby's so, problem. Right. But this, <laughs> this is a great example of why we're doing this show of guilty pleasures right. and what no. that means. Are you done yet? Uh, I just, no. Okay, keep okay. going. 
I, I love the soundtrack, and I probably wore the cassette tape out from listening to it so much. And I think one of the things that appealed to me most years ago were these were people my age, just out of high school and directionless in life, except that they knew that I, they just loved music. Well, except going to Harvard. They're just like me. Yeah, I missed, I, that's that's part of the kind 20 of years. Not directionless. Anyway, that's that's an Empire record. Sometimes I don't know why you guys let me stay on this podcast. That's <laughs> <laughs> ourselves the this, same thing. This is um, exactly why we let you stay on the podcast. <laughs> so I've seen movies uh, before where I've hated specific characters. Movies. So Jar Jar Binks yeah. is a great example. There's a Jar Jar in this movie. His name is Mark. <laughs> I've seen many movies where I didn't like oh, yeah. any of the characters or relate to any of them, but I've never seen a movie where to a person I've hated every single character. Everyone in this movie is trying to be so f- cute and carefree that they all come off as just kind of reprehensible. And the film to me became less about seeing where the story went and just about how each character was going to find a new way to get on my very last nerve. So let's start with the first guy you're talking about, Lucas. I this, like Lucas. This I asshole, he steals money at the very beginning of the movie, blows it in Vegas, puts the entire company in jeopardy, never apologizes, never acknowledges doing anything wrong. And his response to the rest of the movie is just witty little quips whenever anyone tries to call him out on it. He's funny. He then later tries mm. to stop a shoplifter who stole a $10 CD after he himself <laughs> stole nine thousand dollars. <laughs> Ethan Embry's character, who I'm not, I don't, I didn't, I didn't even, I couldn't even stand looking up. That dude drove me insane. Yeah, he was. Wait, which which one was he? <laughs> Hudson and I texted uh, about this earlier. Like, was his character supposed to be mentally handicapped in this movie? I don't movie? know. I don't know. He's but kind of the stoner. Oh, guy. he's the Jar Jar. Yeah, he's the yeah, Jar. They're Mark, all. Yeah. This is a movie full Mark. of Jar Jars. Oh, I hate everyone so much. Jar Jar and sadly, because he reminded me of me as a teenager. <laughs> and, and maybe the worst of all, and this is going to sound a little weird, but let me explain it. Is is the store manager Joe, oh, who Joe acts like man. he's powerless to do anything about it, even though he's the only one in any sort of authority figure here, and he's the most mature person in the film, and he just lets all of this go unfettered. Joe just wanted oh, to be cool. He lets his mouth go off a couple times. I think he calls Lucas he, a pinhead, he lets a buckethead, and best. <laughs> of all a banana head <laughs> he lets his mouth go off and he talks about what he should do right. and he's right about what he says he should do but he never does any of it he does get into a physical altercation with lucas at one point yeah I'll, I'll tell you the thing that didn't make sense to me when i saw this back in the 90s was this guy rex manning who's supposed to be this like sex symbol yeah. celebrity yeah. but he shows up like looking like an easy listening guy and i'm like are yeah. there a lot of teenage girls who want to sleep with michael bolton well that, that well, is no. i know i had the same issue but they yeah. make, make that point because everybody coming to get their things signed by him are old ladies Ladies. He's. I think he's supposed to essentially be David Cassidy. But then Liv Tyler yeah. tries to sleep with him. Right. Oh yeah, yes, weird. she does. It's her whole goal. Half that the scene made me pretty uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he was. He was one of the main actors in Greece too. Wow. There you go. Huh. He was the the stud, I believe. Stud. Yeah. The the Danny role from Greece too. I firmly believe that this movie made me dumber. <laughs> yeah. I, I hated every minute of it. Oh yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's the worst film <laughs> on this list. It's of, not. For this it's show. not. It's it, not. It's close, Wait, it's though. Not? It's close. No, it's not. I, I actually really <laughs> like... two more of your movies. I really like Ren- Renee Zellweger in this movie. Oh, um, you're, you're not off the hook, Gibby. You got more coming. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, I don't think this is the worst. <laughs> so, Empire Records... Check it out. <laughs> or, or don't. <laughs> but you know what? There is a whole generation of people who grew up with this oh, yeah, movie that I'm sure still love it. it, both on the soundtrack and just nostalgia reasons. Perhaps. The soundtrack was weird to me, though. It's 95, and it's things like mid-80s, Dire Straits. Yeah, and you like can tell it's the director's stuff. favorite stuff, and he yeah, was not right. the age of the right. kids. It's not at all yeah. <laughs> neither, appropriate. Neither, obviously, was the screenwriter, and she thinks a, uh, an insult is banana head. I'm the one who's in trouble here. Because every minute that goes by, and I don't call the cops, I look like a bigger banana head. 
Joe, I can categorically say that you are not a bigger banana head. I love banana head. It's <laughs> a good one. Needs to come back. All right, Lance, you're number two. The Last Action Hero, John McTiernan's 1993 action comedy film, follows Danny Madigan, a young boy who obtains a magic ticket that allows him to pass through the movie screen and into the fictional film of his favorite action hero, Jack Slater, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger is Jack Slater. Wow! This hero stuff has its limits. Jack Slater is everybody down now. The last action hero. The big ticket for 93. So this movie's probably most famous for being a box office disaster that had a negative impact not only on Sony, the studio that released it, but on many careers. Schwarzenegger considered it his first failure and stated it was the beginning of the end of his film career, which I thought that was an odd statement since his film career went on for quite a while after that. Still is. Still really. is happening. Yeah. Uh, John he did McT- True Lies after this. Yes, he did. I guess he forgot <laughs> about that. But John McTiernan retreated to his Wyoming home and took a break from directing because he was so disappointed in the outcome. And perhaps no one was more disappointed than the movie-going public who absolutely despised this movie. Last Action Hero had unbelievable hype going into the summer of 93. And when you watch it now, it's obvious what went wrong, which is that audiences didn't get what they were expecting. After a string of successful Schwarzenegger movies, the public clearly was expecting another solid, straight-out action film, as the title of the film even indicates that. What I don't think a lot of people realized going in was that this was supposed to be the a satire of the action genre and more of a comedy. And in terms of it being a satire, it's a really fun one. The other problem is that the filmmakers ran out of time making it. They pleaded with studio heads to delay the June release date as they were still editing and filming, including the week before release. (laughs) But the studio wouldn't budge, which I have to say was unbelievably stupid Uh, move on their part. You know why it was really, really stupid? Why? The week before June 11th, 1993, was the release of Jurassic Park. Uh, Yeah. The biggest movie of all time at the time. But they they just waited. This kind of stuff is still going on though where they they pick up a release date before they even have a script for the and film and that's what's so dumb and that's what happened with this movie and there, there's a great book about this uh it's not specifically about this but it's called hit and run and it's about the two guys who ran sony john peters and peter goober um <laughs> i don't know funny and it's about basically one of the big chapters and it is about is all about last action and what went wrong with it and that studio stubbornness which still happens today people yeah. don't continue to not learn the lesson that it's better to people are not going to remember if you delay a movie a couple of months they are going to remember if you release it and the movie sucks which um, this one obviously doesn't no this is a right. pretty great movie i was watching it last night and the minute it starts first the vivid memories are taken back to the soundtrack that i listened to over and over and over again i loved soundtrack in the mid 90s and then i forgot like how it's funny it's there's it legit is. laughter uh, it, it, it I, is. and i could see where it confused audiences in 1993 big time but i think now it's pretty well regarded as a well it's, successful film it's a fun satire they actually go as far as putting intentional continuity errors in the movie to make fun of action movies. And there are multiple nods to one-liners, villains who over-explain their plans, and a world filled with nothing but attractive women, which is always the case in movies. And the absurdity of the movies is balanced with how much joy we get from them. And I find it really fun to be able to laugh at this thing I love while also being reminded how much I love it. Which kind of segues into the second thing. I I just love movies about movies and the power they have. Mm -hmm. And this turns into a really powerful story about a young boy dealing with loss and abandonment and how the movies help him cope with those things. And that really hits home in a scene late in the film where another film comes to life which is Ingmar Bergman's Seventh Seal and the famous you know death character mm-hmm. comes out of the screen and they have an interaction and I love that and everything he says to him about how mad he is for taking his dad and all that stuff it just it, it was it's very powerful stuff hmm. I'm not sure McTiernan made a bad movie 
I, I don't. I'm, I'm not so sure either. But this movie, when you look at the list, it's obvious this movie impacted him to a point where it was almost like he didn't really want to make movies that yeah. much after this. I mean, I wonder how much of that was the movie and how much of it was the I studio. Don't right. I don't know. He is a very underrated director. We oh, talk yeah. about the great directors, not just in the sense he made so many great movies, but he he dominated a genre mm-hmm. for 10, 15 years. Yeah. Um, so there's some fun behind the scenes <laughs> stuff going on with this film before it was even made. Zach Penn and Adam Leff wrote the original script as a spoof of Shane Black scripts, and Shane Black was the popular action film kind of the over the top when you get the camera cool guy action movies of the day the original title was uh, extremely violent <laughs> and uh, it was an edgier more adult spoof like the action equivalent of Scream before Scream was made but the studio completely missing what they were trying to do brought in the same guy that they were spoofing <laughs> to come in and rewrite it so Shane Black rewrote the film <laughs> no. and then after uh, Schwarzenegger came on board he demanded a rewrite because he said his character was two dimensional yeah that was the whole point of the script right was that it was a spoof of a typical Schwarzenegger style action hero even his name in the original script was Arno Slater <laughs> I feel like Schwarzenegger probably got what it was trying to do by the time the movie was over. Filmed, yeah. <laughs> by the time the movie opened. Oh, wait a second. <laughs> I think I think had this movie came out a summer later, even especially three years later after Scream, people would have got it. it or or if they timing. just or if they just either delayed the release or advertised it better. Right. Uh, I think it was poor very poorly well, marketed. Well, this is one of those movies that, that summer was on like, you know, all the happy meals and the everywhere. Um it seems obvious to me too what happened here was that McTiernan and Schwarzenegger had they just dominated this genre up to that point and had really done everything there was to do and and again this is my guess I could be wrong but it seems like they just wanted to do something different and the public yeah. eviscerated them for it but if you're willing to meet this movie where it's at it's a really fun ride yeah there's good little jokes in every scene just in the backgrounds I mean there's a scene where they're at the police station and there's a, a cartoon cat there's and an nobody, animated character yeah. nobody thinks it's weird and then they're at the video store and like everybody's dressed up in futuristic clothing for no reason whatsoever it's just little background jokes are, are good Good. Good. Good jokes. Good. I saw Jordan about to say something. Oh, no, I wasn't about to say anything. He's just stretching. To me, I think the problem is the kid actor who's just kind of. I mean, he's fine. Uh, Austin O'Brien. Yeah. He was up for a Razzie for uh, worst new star that year. Yeah. That that probably hurt him. I know. A little kid. (laughs) That's pretty mean. I've actually met him before. He's a really nice guy. Huh. Yeah, weird. That's funny. Wow. I feel like there should be a story. Sorry, AOB. That. He did a church function that I was at. I can't remember what he was well, doing funny. there. But so I, Christian's I got him, him too on their kickball yeah, team. Yeah, he's one of the members. Yeah, um, but I met <laughs> him. Really he's a really, he was a really good guy. Yeah. <laughs> My number two film, If I Stay, a 2014. I wish. Te- I wish you wouldn't. I wish you'd just drop it here. <laughs> and go. I had a feeling those jokes were coming. 2014 teen romantic drama based on the YA novel by Gail Foreman, and you guys probably know this by now, but I have a real <laughs> sweet spot. Well, this was a... What are you laughing at? <laughs> a, no- a novel. <laughs> I thought he was talking about the movie. You probably know that it's a novel. This was a pretty uh, well, This was a pretty big book, wasn't it? I mean, I think it's maybe among yeah, yeah young adults. But I have a sweet spot for young adult fiction, especially if it has a fantasy or sci-fi bent. I mean, the fantasy and If I Stay is uh, there just enough to win me over. So the story follows Mia, a high school senior who on one fateful day is in a car accident with her family. She wakes up outside of her body and finds herself with the choice of whether or not to stay on Earth or move on to... To what we can assume is some kind of heavenly place. And her story is told through flashbacks as we explore her family life, her love interest with indie rock star Adam, <laughs> and uh, her collegiate opportunities as she is a cellist trying out to get into Juilliard. That's, that's one thing that's funny about all these movies is that they're they're always in in the running for these really <laughs> yeah. high stake. Mm. I got to get to Harvard. I have to of get course. to Juilliard. It's like, what about the person who just wants to get into the state college? Yeah. Like or the community college. Yeah. Or anyway. It's fine. We don't, we don't yeah. care about them. Or, was, or the Christian school of state away that will take anybody. Yeah. You know, 
one of those guys. Yeah. Well, those I was, people I was, clearly shouldn't stay. <laughs> I was hoping that you were instead of writing your own description of this movie that you were going to read the one on IMDb I have a feeling you are life changes in an instant for young Mia Hall after a car accident puts her in a coma pay attention to this next sentence <laughs> during an out of body experience she must decide whether to wake up and live a life far different than she had imagined isn't it the same life the, that she had just been living well she must decide whether to wake up and live a life far different than she had imagined <laughs> that's weird yeah whether Not that really. or what there's no choice <laughs> the choice is hers if she if she can go on <laughs> so i'm i'm so confused about this I, movie. well let me point this out too so this movie that's one of the strange things about it. We keep saying she has a choice. It's not very clearly defined what the hell's going on here. So usually in a situation like this, you have these out-of-body experiences in movies. An angel will show up yeah, and explain, yeah, explain, you explain must it. blah, blah, blah. All she's doing is wandering around the hospital. There's no context for it. She doesn't have a guy. She can't wait. She, she's no actually guy. trying to wake up, and she doesn't know how. Yeah. So it's kind of misstated what this movie's really about. Uh, really, it's the nurse whispering in her ear and says, hey, like, baby, hey, sweetie, uh, it's basically up to you at this point. We're going to do everything we can, but you get to choose whether you stay or with so no instruction on how to do yeah, that. And, uh, that and was she's the not like thing. an angel or supernatural or anything. It's just it's right. It's that's what you're battling over the over the film, right? So, but here's the thing: is like I'm obviously not the target audience for this movie. I'm in 2014, I was not a teenager <laughs> nor a girl. However, well, they know you're out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I but I do feel a real deep connection to this film, and you guys can make fun of me for it. I mean, that's the whole point of this episode. Just wait. Um, but. <laughs> But I find myself like on the verge of tears basically through this whole movie, both in a happy and a that sad bad. way. And yes, it's sappy and overly sentimental, and Jordan would hate it for making him feel <laughs> things. Um, but that's who I am. Like, no, no, I, no, I, I like to feel the things. things. Don't just don't make me feel good. Right. So I love the family dynamic. Uh, I long for a community like Mia's family has here. So they invite friends in the community over for this kind of standing Sunday potluck, and they sit around the campfire and play music together. I love the music choices, which I'm sure you guys will make fun of too. But like the plucked string version of. Beyonce's Halo. Remember those walls I built? Baby, they were tumbling down. To the family time band cover of Today by Smashing Pumpkins. Today is the greatest day I've ever known. How to are we Bach, friends? <laughs> the Bach Concertos. Even the original songs written for the film that Adam's band performs, um, I also enjoyed. Who we got tonight? I love the coastal town setting, which is Vancouver filling in for Portland. I love their house. I love the cool parents. I loved Gramps. I can relate to Adam in this, the teenage songwriter in a rock band. I can relate to Mia in this, the awkward wallflower. And I can relate to the dad in this, the aging rocker who gave it all up for his kids. Perhaps most of all, my own childhood was shattered by a similar car accident. So good luck making fun of it now, everybody. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's kind of harder. But um, I will tell you, it's funny. I was going to list everything I hated about this movie. You just listed all of it. <laughs> <laughs> all the things I love. <laughs> Yeah. But I do know I know what it's like to be in a hospital and waiting to find out which of your family members survived and which ones didn't. And I've got to give the film props for making some really brave choices where ultimately, I mean, sure, we'll spoil it. Basically, her whole family dies, even her little brother. That was gutsy. Yeah, which I'll makes her that. decision because at first you're like, oh, why would she not wake right. up? And then you realize her whole family's right. gone. And uh, uh, that's a life totally different. Thing. Yeah. So you miss that when you don't when you only watch the last four <laughs> minutes of yeah. the movie. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you get that she could go on and be with her family in this afterlife 
or is there anything for her here? So true story. I'm watching this movie and there's a moment where there's just, it was a line. Moretz's character says something and I out loud say what the next line is going to be. And (laughs) guess what? That was the exact line. (laughs) And that, that to me in a nutshell was this movie. This film somehow found a way to explore some of the most uninteresting rehash plot themes ever. in such a way that was even less interesting and creative than the 3 million movies that have done those things before. One of the issues I have with movies like this is that in my experience, and, and, and let me say before I say this, I know this isn't 100% of the time, but generally I remember being in high school where like physical attractiveness was a big determination in terms of how popular you were, how lonely and shunned people were. Again, not 100% of the time, but by and large, an attractive girl in high school had no problem getting attention or making friends. And what they do in movies like this is they take the problems that unattractive people ex- experience and hand them to attractive people. And it always rings false to me. (laughs) Not unlike the net. (laughs) No, unlike the net. So, uh, so, okay, let's take that. At the very least, they could have given her an interesting issue because she's so, like, whiny and, like, ugh, I can't, no one understands me. And her big issue in this movie, it's not that she's depressed. It's not that she, like, cuts herself. That would have been interesting. Her big <laughs> her big issue is she doesn't like the same kind of music as everyone else. Oh. She likes classical music. And that she's is afraid hard. no one will understand her. And I'm like, what? That, that's nuts. I feel like that's a pretty small... Yeah, uh, it's no, a that's huge, ridiculous. It's, no, but it's yeah. the, no, but it's the whole reason that she feels like such an outsider. I mean, I think there are, are additional reasons there. I mean, look, I was, I think, an attractive kid in high school and also a shy outcast. I got some Jeez. pictures to show you. I disagree. Everybody <laughs> actually liked you. You were just kind of did your own thing. But. And I think that's kind of what her, I don't think she's dis- <laughs> but you're disagreeing that he was an attractive <laughs> guy. No, he was an attractive guy. He still is. But, but even then, Hudson, everybody liked Hudson, though. Hudson was popular. Right, but from my perspective, much like Mia's perspective, she's this wallflower. She's outside of everybody. And that's what teenage life is. Is, is this is definitely a complaint for the movie and I get that but as a teenager you relate to that that you feel like no one understands you even if they all do like you are in your own world and that's all you care about and that's much of what Mia is in this movie I yeah. think Hudson's got you there Lance I don't think I so I hate to agree with I don't Hudson think so. I think he's making a because, very good point because if it was just going on in her head I would get that but it's not just going on in her head like that's really her situation at, at school like, pe- like people are saying it's like who's Bach who's Mozart and she's like oh and she has to run away because she can't handle that type uh-huh. of like disconnect I don't even remember Okay, but here's the thing. One thing, one more thing I wanted to talk about this is because you could watch this, and I have a feeling a lot of teenage girls watch this and they say, Oh, love is the reason you gotta hang on. (laughs) And the movie does project that a good bit, but I fully recognize there's nothing more silly than young love unless you're young, and then there's nothing more serious. So even in one scene, Mia's mom says to her, it's just very inconvenient to fall in love when you're 17, especially if it's the real thing. And that's what the film explores, basically these two kids who are in love at a bad time, because who falls in love at 18 when you're about to go in different directions across the country and your own paths and all those kind of things? Fair fair enough. I get all of that. I I guess it was just every decision they make of, of how to portray these characters. So the boyfriend friend he's he's a member of a band and he gets signed by a big label sure, because yeah, of yeah, course yeah. he does yeah. her parents are like these hipster cool relatable <laughs> because of course they are she's got it the whole movie hinges on whether she's going to get into juilliard because of course it does it's just right it's but, that I mean, that's movies, over and you know. over and over right and but again you can tell great movies about teenage love john hughes did it repeatedly in the 80s and true I mean, and they weren't and, all and they're, getting and they're good. So it's not the thematic I have an issue with. It goes back Empire to what we were Records saying earlier. No, I didn't. <laughs> um, and Harvard. It's, it's the 
interpretation of it and how they presented it yeah. that I had a real problem with here. Um, so I wanted to talk about the non-love story theme in this, which I feel like is family. And there's a scene towards the end of the film that's pretty cheesy, but it's one of these Sunday potlucks where everyone is sitting around the campfire singing songs and Mia is in the middle of them with her cello. It's the place where she's most accepted, right? Like much like you said, if she did have that issue, even though she's accepted everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and it's those same people that are sitting around that campfire that show up for her at the hospital and whether or not her immediate family survives, she still has this family who loves and cares for her, which I found to be a much more beautiful and relatable sentiment than simply the stick around for love thing, which I feel like people could get accidentally. But I do really feel <laughs> about it's about these makeshift families that we make in the world. I, I, and I really connected with that. I, I don't know if the last scene that Jordan and I watched before yeah. filming this episode you missed the scene. accidentally. You missed the scene right Right, but I'd it. say yeah. then that scene being the <laughs> clincher yeah. definitely undercuts it, yeah. especially when yeah. he pulls that guitar out from under her hospital bed and yeah. sings her this I wrote you a song. horrible yeah. because song. Because of course I did. Yeah. How could a heart like yours ever love a heart like mine? How could I live? My feeling is the director kind of saw it my way and everybody else saw it the, the love way. Just my the way it's edited. And Again, when you get to the the general thematics of this movie, it's good. It's good. It's yeah. powerful stuff. It's just, again, how Too you tell the written. story. Yeah. yeah. But it's also, it's kind of a pretty film. I mean, there's some nice... Oh, I agree. It's, yeah. it's, it's pretty looking. Yeah. Just not yeah. anything else. Funny story. I, <laughs> I keep having connections with people. <laughs> and it's not going to be the last one either. Chloe Grace Moretz, I actually stayed at her house when I was huh. in LA a few years ago. My brother used to babysit her. That's hilarious. So we kind of have a connection to their family. Kind of weird. A connection to her house. Wait, not anymore. Not after she <laughs> yeah. listened she to She didn't this know episode. we were there. Sorry, we snuck but. in after they left for the day. Now, my brother's good friends with her brother, and he lived in LA for a while, huh. so we stayed with him for a bit. Your, your a, review of this movie just ruined their friendship. How does right? that make you Sorry, feel? Are they also yeah. claimed by the Christian softball team? I don't know. Kickball. I thought it was kickball. Oh, kickball. My bad. Get it straight. Jordan. You guys want to talk about a good movie? Yeah, we do. Are we it's debatable on this one. Here's a really good filmmaking idea. Let a ridiculously successful and talented production designer with no directing experience whatsoever helm the third movie in a monstrous blockbuster franchise. Welcome to my number two pick, Jaws 3D. Anybody know the original title? I've told you so many times, I'm sure you I do. I do, but it. I want to hear you say it. Jaws 3 People zero. <laughs> I always thought that was a joke in some spoof movie or something. That was actually no. The Jaws real time. three was originally written to right. be a spoof uh, on the first two. So you're both right. That's funny. Um, but I think the studio was like, you know, we will probably do ourselves a bigger favor by making a instead. serious movie. And then they handed it to a guy Buffoon. who didn't know. Well, no, he. I mean, he was an awesome production designer, just not a good director. And this is the only thing he ever directed. Oh. Makes me sad. This time, I guess Jaws, the original Jaws from the first two, still hasn't died. And it has a baby, and the baby mm -hmm. gets into SeaWorld. Mm -hmm. And then Jaws goes in to revenge. or right. Jaws buys a ticket. Get, yeah. and gets into <laughs> SeaWorld, and then... Everything you're saying makes sense. It, no. <laughs> <laughs> Which really, in a lot of ways, this is a precursor, precursor to Jurassic Park. Oh, well, monster attacking theme Jurassic park. Yeah. Yeah. The theme park like being... World, yeah. It yeah. is Jurassic World, yeah. Big difference though is that and i cannot wrap my head around this jurassic park is obviously a made-up 
park. SeaWorld is a very real park. It's pretty much a a very real park in 1985-1986. Is this the same SeaWorld that's in Orlando? Because they're on the ocean. This is San Antonio, right? I don't. I I can't ever tell what state it's in, but but it's it's an it's just an offshoot. They're opening a new like a new park that's on. It's this Mm. big undersea adventure or whatever. This this version of SeaWorld is such a weird park because they have like Hawaiian luau's, like hoedowns with mud wrestling, dragons. It's like a theme park (laughs) without a theme, which is kind (laughs) of how you would describe this movie. Like, like, like a- any one moment, if you just poked in, you you could see like a gory horror movie or mm-hmm. a wacky sex comedy mm-hmm. or a sci-fi disaster flick. Yeah, it's awesome. It's everything. <laughs> this movie... I am I am totally cool with being horrible. Mm-hmm. It's a total mess, but it is so much fun. And this is the only movie of my three that I actually feel any amount of guilt about, but only because of my unquenchable lust for Leah Thompson. Oh, and I thought you were going to say Dennis Quaid. Well, that is funny. Yeah, Dennis, Quaid Dennis Quaid in 2011. Oh, <laughs> <way> <laughs> yeah, more really? but, but I mean, we picked 12 movies altogether, and somehow we picked two movies where Dennis Quaid <laughs> fights a shark. Yeah. <laughs> so, so now this was Leah Thompson's first film, right? It is. Right. And man. The, the concept here is interesting and fun. Jaws at a theme park. And and I like that. And, and unfortunately, this is one of the only movies I didn't get a chance to go back and revisit. I remember liking this when I saw it years ago. But spatially, when I when, like what makes kind of Jaws hard to fight is it part of it is like you can't find him. Like, where right. is it? He could be anywhere. Right. A theme park's pretty small. So it seems pretty simple to There was kind a of lot locate. I didn't understand <laughs> well, about that's, that's, that's how a, he right. traveled and that's where he That's what's amazing went. about it. Is, is it like one? One tank. It's, a one, he's a one, well, it's a she. She. Mother oh, Jaws. She. Mother Jaws is in this. It's a big tank. Very, <laughs> very big. It's a big tank. Oh, it's huge. But she's not hiding in the tank. She's hiding in this tube. <laughs> This giant 35-foot-long shark yeah. swims into a tube and hangs out there for, like, I don't know, 18 hours? Yeah. Just hangs out just in there? The fact that she knows, like understands the need and concept of hiding is oh, interesting. yeah. I mean, no, this mother shark knows... <laughs> this mother shark. <laughs> well, I am kind of stealing from the, the guy who owns the thing who says... Are you talking about some damn shark's mother? Who plays that guy? I don't remember his oh, name. Yes. He's, he's amazing. Yeah, he's movie. The guy who owns the... Yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. he has no idea what he's doing. <laughs> Does he play, it's like, a, the mayor from the first one? Like, is he kind of that role where he's saying everything's it's fine? It's not Luke Gossett uh, Jr., is it? Don't yeah, mess Luke with Gossett Jr. Yeah. Okay. yeah, basically, he's, he's okay. essentially that sort of character. Yeah, I've been don't there. mess with um, prophets and yeah. you know, what, how many and people are dying. Part of what's really amazing about this movie is, like I said, this really successful production designer directed it. And I think he hired the worst production designer in all of Hollywood to do the production design for That's this. Odd. Because the shark doesn't move. <laughs> like it has no articulation to it. And the body, uh, there's a there's this uh, guy that works at the park that gets attacked by Jaws. And when they bring his body out and they do the autopsy, it is the fakest looking body I've ever <laughs> seen in my life. And somehow the shark skinned him rather than just took a bunch of bites or chewed him up. It, uh. Nothing in this movie makes sense except that they cast Leah Thompson, which was a great <laughs> idea. Yeah. So basically you're saying you just like this movie because of Leah Thompson. No, I love <laughs> this movie because it's really fun. Yeah. And I, I have vivid memories of the first time I saw it and I grew up in, in Orlando and so it was terrifying. But most of all, it's Leah Thompson. What's uh, hilarious to me is that they tried to make this connect even more to the first two by making Dennis Quaid the son of Police oh, Chief yeah. Brody. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like, it could have just made this totally different. Well, and then the other son comes to visit. Yeah. yeah. One of my favorite things researching this movie is how mad Spielberg was that they were going to make it to the point he threatened to leave his contract with Universal if they planned on making the original spoof version. Oh, really? Yeah. Screenwriter Richard Matheson was inexplicably involved in Which this. Which is 
insane. That's nuts. I and don't think any of his things ended up no, staying. No, no. And later he complained that the script doctors ruined the original idea of a great white shark swimming upstream and being trapped by a lake as if that was an Oscar winning premise that <laughs> in any way made for a great film. I mean, I don't know if you guys have watched... 3D movies, not in 3D. Oh, yeah. oh they look terrible. But it's pretty bad. Where but you this get- one especially, because I think the camera they shot, the kind of 3D that they shot, yeah. like makes 2D just not even possible. Yeah, it's just these kind possible. of crappy effects kind of sitting in the middle of the screen for 10 seconds. Pausing all drama. <laughs> most of the screen is out of focus. Yeah. Also, this movie opens on like really impressive water skiers, but they're covered up by giant titles. It was like, <laughs> why would you even put that behind there? <laughs> Yeah, this, this movie's terrible. Terribly uh, fun. There is a pretty great <laughs> sequence where you get to watch Jaws eat a guy from inside its mouth. No, no, no. That is, I think, maybe the dumbest death <laughs> in all of film history. It's so slow <laughs> and like he barely and, and is we, chewing. Yeah, then we stay. We're in the camera is in the shark's mouth. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> it, it is awesome, but it's also <laughs> so also do, do sharks stupid. chew? They don't really chew in the traditional they sense. They? No, yeah. they just swallow it. Oh. Yeah. I mean, that's why in the first one, you've got license plates and all that stuff that right, that's in that, right. in that belly. So, all right, give yeah. me. But you guys had fun watching Jaws 3, right? I had fun watching Jaws 3. Well, it was that's, fun. That's what matters. So fun. Uh, watched it with Julian, too. Oh, good. Did he like Leah Thompson? <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't think he gave it much thought. Hmm. Give me number two. <laughs> All right, so my next pick is from another genre of film that I really, truly love. Adult romantic comedies. Give <sighs> me just say the damn name of the movie. <laughs> you started your first one with like 15 seconds before no, you named the movie. started with hold on, the actual... Hold on, say you're this out is of an order. Adult, yeah, this is, why'd you... Did you say an adult romantic comedy? Yeah, adult romantic comedy. I think I'm switching it. Well, you didn't tell any <laughs> of th- us. I think I'm switching it. Why are you complicating this? Oh, my bad. All right, fine. Well, I'll go back. <laughs> <laughs> you are going back? No. So it's the adult romantic comedy, not adult like hubba hubba, but adult like <laughs> romantic comedies featuring mature people, generally directed by Nora Ephron, Nancy Myers, or low rent Nora Ephron and Nancy Myers. It involves some adults with real jobs, one person's organized, put together, foil, unreliable, usually meet cute, occurs within the beginning, and then a miscommunication with 20 minutes left that could easily be resolved if people would just talk to somebody else. But it always involves people with super nice homes or apartments, and I love these movies. Today's film is the 2011 Nancy Myers comedy it's complicated, but I could have just as easily picked Something's Gotta Give or The Holiday or Failure to Launch, anything from <laughs> just <laughs> you did, Matthew you didn't McConaughey. Pick those. Yeah, I was so going to change it again, but then no you watch this on the no same No one day. cares what you almost picked. Talk about the movie you I think picked. people do. I think people write in, like, what did Gibby almost pick? <laughs> anyway, We've been getting a lot of those emails. <laughs> anyway, it's complicated. That's the movie I picked. Stars Meryl Streep. Streep. <laughs> Meryl Streep. Stars <laughs> Meryl Streep. And one of her rare forays into this genre is Jane Adler, a divorced woman in her mid-50s, lives on a farm or something and has three grown kids. She doesn't live on a farm. She lives on a like <laughs> giant, expensive estate in yeah. Malibu or something. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And what's weird is she's doing a renovation of her already pretty sweet kitchen, but she meets contractor Adam Schaefer, played by Steve Martin. They have sparks, but that sparks are complicated when she sees her ex-husband at their youngest kid's graduation and their sparks reignite in bed. Whoops. Which is complicated even further by the fact that her ex, Jake, played by Alec Baldwin, has remarried and has super young kid with a super young new wife. More complications arise as Jake and... Jane remember their passion for each other, but Jane also has feelings for the kind of nerdy contractor, Adam. And still even more complications when Jane and Jake's kids finds out. 
So just in general, these films and this movie are just kind of like comfort food to me because I know by the end, everyone's going to have learned a lesson and become somewhat better people. I mean, of course, I may have picked a wrong example of that since this movie is all about cheating on your spouse and all that. But uh, I probably should have rewatched it before picking it. But like with Empire Records... <laughs> or after picking it. <laughs> well, it, it shouldn't... It well, shouldn't, he watched it. It shouldn't surprise anyone that Hollywood is the hotbed of the Me Too movement. When you watch a film like this that seems to... Where having affairs, cheating, borderline sexual harassment are, are treated with this weird kind of lighthearted playfulness. That, that was very strange to me. Yeah. Well, when you're rich and white, like Nancy Myers yeah. and all these stars are. Wow. Mm-hmm. Whew, this got deep. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 Kibbe, I, I need to ask you a question. Okay. Why do you feel guilty about loving this movie? Um, <laughs> I think we just talked about it. And the fact that this is about a complicated relationship. I don't feel guilty about loving this movie. I, I, I like this film. Right, but this is, this is the Guilty Pleasures episode. Uh, yeah, so I'm yeah, trying yeah, to figure yeah. out why. Uh, because generally when it's just a... Is it because you know we're going to make the United States for it? preconceived that- notions of what a man in his early 40s should like and not like. And a man in his early 40s shouldn't be liking Give romantic comedy. He's a victim of our culture. <laughs> yeah. If the culture <laughs> would just expand their mind and <laughs> allow people like me to enjoy what people like me want to enjoy, it would be can. okay. See, I, th- I think you're exactly wrong. Yeah. I think this is an expertly made expertly acted hilarious thoughtful fascinating thought-provoking movie oh wow i don't think there's i don't think there's any reason to feel bad about it i think well, it's now really he really does well it made because you liked it yeah now he feels great oh, i like it i like this film. well you liked it i thought you hated this oh no it was no. the other one that's a surprise uh, twist. i really really enjoyed this movie. yeah this is a fun movie i mean actually i think all of nancy meyer's films are well are fun to watch, and they do eventually say something a little deeper. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna add to the surprise here. There's this there's this principle Roger Ebert talks about where it's not what a movie's about, but how well it does being about that thing. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think it's easy for people like me to just scoff at everything that's sappy or you know. But there's a place for movies like this and and an audience for this and 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 the trying suburbs. To- <laughs> well, I don't know. Malibu. But, but in trying to cater to that audience, I thought this film did a pretty good job of doing that. Like what yeah. it was trying to do, I thought it was fine. I didn't I didn't really hate this either. I thought it was effective again in terms of the you know, it's not the target that I love to see hit when I go to a movie, but it, it hit its target no. really well, I thought. Yeah, I thought it was really enjoyable. And I th- I mean, apart from it being about rich white people and their rich white people problems, which was certainly... <laughs> what is the race? That's every, every, you guys are so these obsessed with white people. What? It's, it's no, the it's Nancy Myers thing. It's like every yeah. single movie is about a rich white person. I mean, obviously, she, what she she's is, rich, a rich white, white person. And I believe she's one that didn't break into a well into her 50s. And yeah, she, she was much later movies, in life. Yeah. Uh, Meryl Streep does two things in this movie that exploded my brain. That were so outrageous, I never thought I would see Meryl Streep do either of them. <laughs> One of them is Alec Baldwin and Meryl Streep lying in bed, in, I think in the morning after Coitus. having had sex for oh, the first time. Yeah, coital, coital bliss. Yes, Half yes. of the scenes Thank of this you. film take place in <laughs> oh, that. Oh, it's great. <laughs> it's great. And uh, Alec Baldwin reaches over, puts his hand on Meryl Streep's crotch and says, Home sweet home. Yep. Which <laughs> that happens. I, yep. I couldn't believe. Then there's a scene where they have a little rendezvous in a hotel, and this sequence is hilarious because John Krasinski's character, the son-in-law, witnesses some of it happen and has to keep it away from That's the daughter. Scene, yeah. it's, it's a really, really well done scene. But in the hotel room, Alec Baldwin has a heart attack, but not really something happens. He faints or something. And so there's a doctor in there and there's a lot of confusion about their relationship. And somehow we end up at Meryl Streep saying that she prefers a lot of semen, which I never <laughs> thought I would yeah. hear Meryl Streep say. Very odd. <laughs> I also 
not involving Meryl Streep, I never thought I'd see Alec Baldwin shotgun the smoke from a joint into John Krasinski's mouth. <laughs> that was weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's lot a funny, of but I didn't realize you're right. It's punctuated by these strange moments. Oh, where like, this super strange. Happened? But I think I think they totally work. The only moment that I was really disappointed in this movie is at the end. Uh, Meryl Streep is having a conversation with her three children, and it's this really great scene of connection and apology and forgiveness. And it's I think it's beautifully done. A really nice moment, and then. It cuts to John Krasinski and who totally undercuts the emotional bit of the scene by like coming in for like a group hug. And it, it really does. That was weird. The, but the beginning of that scene's weird too, because remember, she comes to the house, she knows the children are upset, and John Krasinski meets with the door. He's like, I think you better handle this one. And she walks in, and all three of them are laying in a bed together. <laughs> yes. And they're in their like 20s. <laughs> right. Doesn't make any sense. Uh, this movie costs $85 million to make. Well, yeah. What? How much of that do you think went to Alec Baldwin? They got a lot of Alec Baldwin Dang. and Steve Martin and Street, but it's pretty crazy. Uh, I thought Steve Martin was great. Yeah, I really enjoyed oh, 99.9% of this movie. Made me want to watch more Nancy Myers movies, actually. Her movies are all very They're all roughly the same. You like Something's Gotta Give a lot, didn't you? That we were talking about, the Jack Nicholson, Diane I, Keaton I, I confused that movie with his, As uh, Good As It Gets, which is no, not Nancy yeah, Myers. I didn't rewatch this and didn't even realize I'd seen it before until <laughs> I was a good towards the end of the trailer when I was watching it, which I thought was weird. I mean, it's like all these stars and all this, yeah. but I think it's just kind of forgettable. I mean, it's just just a, yeah. it's a movie. It, it is. I mean, not much stuck with yeah. me from it, but it, it, yeah, it, 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 it does. It explores oh, some yeah. interesting things. The outrageousness of Meryl Streep things made me... Yeah. But maybe it's because you don't watch these movies very often, oh, and I watch not. them all the time, so they all kind of run together. Sure. It's complicated. Yeah, it's, it's a complicated. complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Lance, number one. Roadhouse, 1989 film by Rowdy Harrington. Patrick Swayze plays <laughs> What Dalton. a name. I know, is, I that, know. is that his given name? I don't know. It his Christian be. name? Yeah. Patrick Swayze plays Dalton, a nationally renowned bouncer, because apparently that's a thing, <laughs> after he's summoned to a small town in Missouri to help clean up a sleazy dive bar called the Double Deuce. He falls in love with a local doctor and clashes with the evil businessman Brad Wesley, who is hell-bent on doing something evil. So, <laughs> Wait, can I pause you there? Yeah. I, I'm not sure if I misheard this part, but there's a part when... Sam Elliott comes to the double deuce mm-hmm. and I'm, and he's by himself and I'm pretty sure he gets off his motorcycle, looks at the sign and goes, the double douche. The double douche. <laughs> I guess that's a throwaway joke. I don't know. So, this movie is nuts. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. Oh, it's yeah. not particularly well made. It's got tons of issues and problems and absurd moments. Oh, and over the top elements. A third of the shots are out of focus. None of it makes <laughs> sense. And yet people in our generation in particular keep coming back to it over and over again. And it's gained something of a cult following that may have at this point expanded beyond just being a cult. I have a friend at work who named her son Dalton because of this movie. Whoa. Totally wow. normal woman. When I've talked to friends about this episode and told them I picked this, they were thrilled. They were like, sweet, talk about Roadhouse finally. I knew it came up on our Facebook page a couple of times too. And looking at why this movie connects with people, I I had to kind of really put on my critic hat here and try and think through this. I think it's because it's a mixture of a legitimately good David versus Goliath story that's told up against this world that doesn't make any sense and that you keep trying to figure out in your head and not being able to figure out adds this comical element that's entertaining you in a completely different way. So it's kind of like you're getting entertained on two completely different levels at the same time. But I would add a third, and I, and I know you love this, and so do I. Like when you get to see behind the scenes of a of a thing that you don't normally get to mm-hmm. see. Like we don't, we would probably both love to watch a documentary about bouncers uh, it's, at clubs. It's a subculture. There's yeah, a subculture yeah. going here that's interesting, but I don't think the subculture is anything like 
this. <laughs> right. Oh, who knows? Which is so, kind of what, like in the Wild West, right? Right, right. Well, I'm so, glad you said that because this movie is so much a Western Absolutely. To me. Yeah. It absolutely a is. A kung fu Western, so but it, a Western. <laughs> so Roadhouse rides this strange line between a legitimately good action movie and one of those so bad they're good movies without ever planting its feet firmly in either category. Oh, now, it's, it's definitely in the so bad it's good. I don't know. I, I don't think it's uh, as simple as well, that. Because it's so good. It's just also bad. Yeah, because there are legitimately good things about it. Oh, yeah. Like when the bad guy's beating everybody down with the pool cue, and then he does this wild backflip where yeah. he lands five feet higher <laughs> right. than he right. started from. Uh, now, when, when I say this is a world that doesn't make any sense, I want to give a few examples. So let's start with just the entire concept of being a bouncer, which in this movie is treated like it's a professional sport, complete with reputations and even some sort of ranking system. So we meet Dalton's mentor, Wade Garrett, which is played by Sam Elliott, you mentioned earlier. And Dalton w- without informs... Without a mustache. I no mustache. Add. Sans mustache. But Dalton God, informs someone that Wade cool. is the number one bouncer in the country, whereas he's number two. <laughs> so is there a poll? Like, on what basis is he making this claim? He's bounced more people. Right. And then, and also, the entire how good a bar is is apparently completely predicated on how good their bouncer mm-hmm. is, which I don't think in the real world that really matters. Now, Ben Gazzara, who was a very respected actor, especially in the 70s, plays Brad Wesley. And I don't know that I've ever had more questions about a character than I did this character. <laughs> so, first off, he's this insanely wealthy guy who lives in a town with like one, one stoplight. And why he's put his roots down there and why he thinks it's so important to control this little piece of nowhere to the point he's willing to actively kill people for it, to protect his control over it, is Before he even meets Dalton, he tries to run him off the road for no reason and has somehow carved out a dictatorship in the middle of America where no one even thinks about reporting multiple felonies to the police. Which takes me to my next point. There is zero law enforcement in this town. It seems like just a call to the state police would have solved all of this. And it's like they're living in this post-apocalyptic world (laughs) where where authority has just (laughs) vanished. It's easy to take all of these elements as weaknesses, but they're handled in such a way that somehow adds to the film and makes it fascinating to watch. And I, I just can't take my eyes off it when I watch it. These characters are so invested in things that they shouldn't have this much stake in or care about and it's just amazing and trying to figure out this alternate universe where bouncing is a national pastime and the economics and power structure of this town are baffling is so much fun it shouldn't work but it just does they should have called this movie bounce house No, 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 they shouldn't have. No, nope. um, I feel like Patrick Swayze is such a unique talent because, like, who who do we have today that's like this badass ballerina, which is essentially what he oh, is. Oh, that's exactly what he is. That's, yeah. a, that's a good point. I don't know. Maybe that we really Hugh have Jackman a... plays in those worlds a little bit. I would say more than Hugh Jackman, it's Viggo Mortensen. Yeah, the, the like he's much more the, zen, the, the tough than Hugh poet. Yeah, 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 but yeah, he's yeah. not the B movie guy like Swayze was. Right, Russell Crowe. Ebert was kind of ahead of his time in his review. He says uh, Roadhouse exists right on the edge between the good bad movie and the merely bad. I hesitate to recommend it because so much depends on the ironic vision of the viewer. This is not a good movie, but viewed in the right frame of mind, it's not a boring one either. I just kind of how people have learned to embrace it over time. Right. Yeah. I somehow had never seen this movie. Really? Wow. Yeah, I can't believe it. And I watched it, and I loved it. I could have guessed that. Man, I loved it. There are some of the most incredible lines in this movie. Mm-hmm. Pain don't hurt. Do you enjoy pain? Pain don't hurt. Pain don't hurt is yeah. definitely one. I don't fly. Too dangerous is another one. Uh-huh. He's a bouncer. Right. He, he has Deals more with scars than, yeah. yeah. At one point, he's asked like what he spends his time doing or something. Man's search for faith, that sort of <laughs> It's all these like <laughs> attempts at irony. <laughs> yeah. It's so bad. And one of my absolute favorites during a, one of the climactic fight scenes near the end, the bad guy says to Swayze. <laughs> I used to f- guys like you in prison. <laughs> Which leads me to ask what you guys think about that Swayze sex scene. 
Is it? Is I, it I, I didn't rewatch it. We're all speechless. Like, clearly, oh man, yeah. it, it weirded me out. So well, what weirded you out? I'm just curious. Swayze and sex. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, according to Kelly Lynch, whenever Bill Murray sees her sex scene with Patrick Swayze on TV, Bill Murray calls her husband Mitch Glazer to tease him about it. <laughs> so awesome. I mean, it is a really weird scene. Everything about it is weird. So one thing is interesting, uh, Swayze apparently wrote a song and sang two songs for the movie sound- soundtrack, one of which is called Raising Heaven, in parentheses, in hell, close parentheses, tonight. <laughs> tonight. My, one of my favorite pieces of trivia of reading this was Kelly Lynch, who plays the the love interest, worked in a, a hospital ER for a month to prepare for her role. Oh, wow. So think about this for a second. So Kelly Lynch reads this script and is so overcome with the realism of it that she has to <laughs> nail she she has to nail her role so she's believable in a movie that doesn't have one believable thing in it. No. <laughs> um, I'll give you guys one kind of final kind of shocking uh, fact about this movie, loosely based on a true story. Get uh, out. And serious. you're sitting now, here trying on, to tell us on, that this on, isn't what happened. Not the bouncer part of it. <laughs> oh. There is a town, uh, Skidmore, Missouri was the name of it. So the, the state was right. It was loosely based on this. There was a town bully named Ken McElroy who terrorized people in this town, was shot to death by multiple people in the town, and everybody covered it up. And that's what wow. was the inspiration for this script. Man, that final scene, mm-hmm. spoiler alert, is incredible. Mm-hmm. Until the bad guy who's still alive makes a joke mm-hmm. about the polar bear that fell on him. Yeah. It, I, I was shocked by the ending. Yeah. Like, I couldn't believe what was happening, yeah. and I was so into it. And then they made that stupid, stupid joke. Stupid joke, yeah. Uh, tiny bit of meaningless thing. Lance, did you notice the product placement in the beginning of the not. cash register in the bar NCR? No. Yeah. <laughs> That's a company one of us works at. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Ready? Okay. Oh, boy. Oh, oh My number one guilty pleasure <laughs> film. Let's bring it, it down about four notches. <laughs> is Bring It On, the cheerleading comedy released in the year 2000 starring Kirsten Dunst as Torrance Shipman, a captain of a competitive cheerleading squad. Again, it's a unique take on the sports film because their school, the Rancho Carne Toros, which is a great name, and affluent school in the San Diego area are not the underdogs at all, but instead the four-time returning champions. And I think this movie is so much fun to watch. Uh, it's so unapologetic. The actors look like they're having a blast and really embracing it even the script is so weird and fully embraces its cheeriness it really takes you into this unique world that probably doesn't exist but that's oh. kind of that's oh, p- no, part, no, no, part no. of the fun of it i used to practice with the cheerleaders in high school and i was the mascot <laughs> for basketball games i was very involved in all that stuff in high school this exists <laughs> uh, even the kind of attitudes and stuff so oh, like, totally. like they, every every word out of a character's mouth is like quippy and clever and every character is talented and confident and parents don't really exist until they need money from Ni- them neither do coaches there's not a single <laughs> yeah. cheerleading coach or in this movie. Or anything. Yeah, I, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit, Jordan, and Ooh. not from my own perspective. I watched this with my girlfriend, who was a cheerleader in high Ooh. school. She loves this, but she was thrilled that she got to watch this with me. I was like, oh, great. She said the cheerleading world is not really anything like this, but she loves this movie because she said it's a, a great spoof of the cheerleading world. I mean, certainly so, this obviously is... Obviously, a is satire right. is going to have some realism in it, but this is obviously not meant to be a documentary. But right. it's about a subculture. We just talked yeah, about that yeah. a minute ago. And, and I'll say overall, I didn't hate watching this. It was uh, it's a it was a fun subculture to watch. They're obviously making fun of things, and they did a pretty good job making fun of it. I yeah, think it's I, really I, fun. I enjoyed it. I think it's made in a really fun way. I think a lot of it's shot mm-hmm. in a really fun way. I think the acting is um, horrible and therefore kind of fun. It's got such an energy to it. The whole film, absolutely. Like yeah. The way that it's cut and the way that it's shot has a ton of energy and. An, 
Kirsten Dunst is just super cute in it too. Like she's just fun to watch. Yeah. And, like, and and she's taking it. It's not taking it seriously. She's just she, fully she sells involved. out to it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and exactly. every character in the movie does. No, I think th- I think there's a lot of good things to say about this movie, and I think it it brings up some important issues as far as stealing and especially stealing from like. Well, the, I wanted the, to talk about that. It's got this surprisingly unexpected point of view, kind of on race relations and white privilege and all that. Yeah. Basically, there's a rival school in the East Compton Clovers. A mostly black cheer squad. I don't think it's a rival school at all. In terms of the the cheerleading, their their schools don't play each other. It's rival squads, right? Right. Rival squads, yes. And so, anyways, their cheers, the Clovers have been blatantly appropriated by the Toros. And when the Clovers end up slaughtering them in the regionals, they move on to the finals, but they can't afford to go. So Torrance, in her sweet but rich white girl way, raises the money for them to go, but the Clovers turn it down, deciding they want to make it on their own and not be handed to them, which I found really kind of applicable to mm-hmm. today's culture. Sure. Uh, what I also found really applicable to today's culture is the insane things that they seem to be okay with, like sexual assaulty sort of things. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Real, real yeah. problematic in this movie. <laughs> right, yeah. It, uh, yeah. The, there's a male cheerleader. He's the straight one. And he basically brags about how this girl that he has to pick up all the time doesn't wear underwear and that his digits, he can't right. help it if his digits slip. It's it's, it's hinted a little bit that she encourages it, but it's still. I it, will tell you, um, I I was informed by a girlfriend who will go nameless that actually happens and and not on purpose. No doubt, it, it like that actually oh, actually no happens way. in real. No doubt, and I and I yeah. believe that that's why they put it in there. Right, right. but they celebrate but they it in a way. Right, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. it's very that creepy. Is not okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also have a soft spot for the love story in this, which is so dumb, but it's sweet. And you really like the guy who goes off to college. I love. Oh no, oh, I do, and I want to. <laughs> talk about him real quick so i think one of the most underrated comedy characters of all time is this guy aaron he is very is funny her. he is pretty funny he's yeah. amazing so he's he's a freshman in college but he looks about 40 <laughs> uh he's supposed to be rich but he drives a geo tracker which every time I he leaves that. he like peels out and blasts metal music yeah. he wears a turtleneck to a cheerleading event at the beach one of my favorite lines in the film is where he's talking to torrance on the phone they're still together he hangs up and there's another girl in his bed, and she says, oh, who are you talking to? And he goes, oh, that was my sister. And he's like, but you're not my sister, which is the, <laughs> the funniest, weirdest, le- least sexy line ever. It's kind of, and that type of comedy is kind of throughout the movie. Yeah. It's a movie that knows what it is, and it mm-hmm. doesn't take itself too seriously, and it has fun with it. And I, I, I like that. Yeah. But I did like the guy that plays the actual love interest, Jesse Bradford, who apparently doesn't have any parents. But um, <laughs> that teeth brushing scene. That teeth brushing scene is, is very, It's very one of my good. favorite flirting scenes of an any movie so essentially it's she's staying over at her friend's house who's this guy's sister and she goes to brush her teeth and the dude walks in the brother and they're brushing their teeth next to each other so she'll brush for a little bit and then spit and then he'll brush for a little bit and spit and the first time she spits she's like covers up so she can't see it and they do this little dance and it's really sweet of like this it's a very good scene Uh, third personal connection in this Mm -hmm. film Wow. If you know what Whoa, I'm about to say. I do. The gay cheerleader is played by an actor named Huntley Ritter who went to our high school. Great name. Oh, really? I don't know. He's not acting anymore. I think he, I don't know what he's doing. At the time, biggest douchebag I've ever met in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. He may be a great guy now. I don't know, Huntley, if you're listening to this. I apologize, but <laughs> you were kind of a jerk in 11th grade. <laughs> Directed by Peyton Reed. Yeah. Goes on to direct massive budget movies at this point. Ant-Man. Ant-Man, Ant-Man and Ant-Man 2. Alrighty, anything else on that one, guys? No. Uh, it was a great well, farting scene I'd, at 23 minutes. Really like that was actually my actual favorite scene in the movie. I knew you would love that. Oh, I loved scene? it. I it's the little brother. Hey, I have to tell you something. I'm on the phone, creep. I realized that. 
And normally I'd be listening on the other line, but this is important. Okay, what? Oh, get out! Thank you for listening. Oh, I yeah. think the little brother is the is the most perfectly cast person in that movie, and he's my favorite character. <laughs> he's so obnoxious. Yeah, he's a, yeah. he's amazing. He just looks obnoxious. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I think you definitely got the theme of this episode, Hudson. But this movie, I kind of do question in terms of guilty pleasure. Like oh, Justin, you think it's great? Yeah, I think it's pretty great. <laughs> Did you I think, call him Justin. <laughs> Huh? Just Jordan. like that's a Justin. <laughs> Didn't you? Wait, no one knows I'm on this podcast. My Justin. name is Jordan, but you just did that with one of your own movies. It's yeah, complicated, right? Yeah, which is also well. So maybe you learned a lesson about I mean, hypocrisy. Bring it on! It, it's a legitimately funny movie, but it's also as a 40 year old guy, you don't want to walk around being like, "Oh, I like this cheerleading movie." Why not? Which it feels it feels a little creepy now, but the, these characters were our age. I, I know, really like, like yeah. teenage midriffs and. <laughs> All right, Jordan, you're number one. <laughs> number one. To go with my number one, I have another presentation of just brilliant filmmaking decisions. See, Jordan does it too. You aren't yelling at him. But he likes me more than He you. hasn't listed right. the movie yet. I'm going to. It's been one sentence. Yeah, no, it wasn't yeah. one. Well, the last time I started, it was one sentence and he yells at me. Well, because you have a history, Gibby. You do, you've done, you do this every time. You guys are stepping all over my introduction. <laughs> all right, go Making it. it much longer than go it would have been. Jordan. I would have been done. So in 1986, Dino De Laurentiis had this brilliant idea to let a coke-addled <laughs> Stephen King not only write, which is fine because Stephen King had, uh, his movies so far had been really pretty good not only write but direct a movie stephen king is a guy who sits with a typewriter in a state that no one else goes to <laughs> and we thought hey let's let him direct a whole movie was it a bad idea certainly am i deeply grateful that it happened absolutely this gem of a movie is called dino de Laurentiis presents stephen king's Maximum Overdrive. Maximum Overdrive. Mm-hmm. Do, do, do. Here's the setup. <laughs> a meteor or comet or something it's swings... A comet. Yeah, it sure. Makes no sense. <laughs> swings by close enough to Earth to possess a slew of machines with a lust for murder. Lawnmowers, electric knives, coke machines, arcade games, machine guns, steamrollers, and most importantly, tractor trailers with demon faces. Uh, our story focuses on a little truck stop with a charming ensemble of characters and the shit that goes down. Really, bottom line, is that this movie is even more fun than it should be. Start to finish, it's a complete blast. Do you need more than that? I will say that that demon tractor trailer is one of the most iconic images in oh, my mind yeah. from the 80s. Yeah. yeah. This movie was amazing. So for starters, the, the I want to go back to what you said about the comet. It makes no sense, but then what's so funny is the very last crawl <laughs> yes. on the screen yes. where they sum the whole movie up, it throws out the fact that it was really an alien. Yeah, they change it. By the way, also it was an alien. <laughs> Thank you. It's so weird. Like, why did they just ending. say, why, but why not put that at the beginning? I think because this movie essentially begins exactly the same way that John Carpenter's The Thing begins. Okay. Second, they can't ever really seem to find consistency in terms of which machines are impacted by this. No, not at all. So at first it's like cars and vehicles, but then it gets to a point where sprinklers, which are not (laughs) electronic devices, and then I'm pretty sure there's a scene where a bicycle (laughs) is impacted. It's questionable, but there's no reason that that kid should have wrecked his bike. Um, The the gist of this is obviously you got a group of people trapped in this gas station and they're shockingly kind of unconcerned well a lot when of the you've film got Emilio Estevez on. on your side yeah but a lot of them are just eating joking around having sex like <laughs> just kind of hanging out and part of you gets it because you can never really assess how much danger they're actually in it seems like a quick sprint would get them out of this situation completely there's a scene towards the end where the people make a deal with the machines to pump their gas to mm-hmm. give them more that's their food obviously which leads to a five minute montage that is literally people just 
pumping gas. And by the end, apparently pumping gas in this movie is an exhausting activity because Estevez like almost passes out the end. It shows his hands. They're like ripped to shreds yeah. they filled from pumping up, gas. They filled up dozens of trucks. Right. <laughs> they didn't like go in shifts, take breaks, wear gloves. No. Just It's crazy. But th- this is a fun movie. I don't even know how to like describe this movie past what we've done to try to get people to watch it. It's, it's a movie that really has to be seen yeah. to be believed. Agreed. It Agreed. is completely insane. There's only so much you can talk about with it. There is. Emilio Estevez does deliver this line that blows my mind every time. I can't remember why he says it. It probably doesn't matter. But he says, Jesus is coming. He is pissed. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's not. It's a comet came too close right. to Earth. No, it's not. Or, it's or a then, UFO. Or then an alien. Yeah. yeah. So I, I didn't rewatch this for this, but I remember watching it when I was younger because my best friend in first grade, this was his favorite movie, which seems very uh, yeah, not very appropriate. appropriate. Yeah. Right. Not. Also, the apparently the cameraman lost his eye filming this movie. I saw that, yeah. Which, which if you're going to get injured on a movie, is this really the sacrifice you <laughs> want to make? He sacrificed half his vision for maximum uh, overdrive. It was a, a radio-controlled lawnmower hit a piece of wood, and yeah. they had requested that the blades be taken off, but King wanted to make it as realistic as possible. <laughs> it's not like you like see the blades or anything. Oh. Just noise. Man. <laughs> it reminds me like those guys that died uh stuntman making that movie Gone Fishing. Like if you're gonna die, like die on yeah. something like oh. I think this is gonna be great movie. <laughs> I feel terrible. You have to die. This. Yeah. I know. this was a Showtime slash HBO staple in the eighties on mm-hmm. oh yeah on cable on TV. It was always on. It was weird because I would just heard Stephen King at that point. You know, it's in in reference to scary things and horror. And then this would come on and be like, "This is not scary at all." Well, that's the thing about Stephen King that I find really fascinating is that I feel like a lot of times his stuff actually. I mean, he writes a lot of th- a lot of things that are very scary. But then there'll be things like this that's just weird. Like yeah, he just he does and I think lot. he has no filter and he. Just like he writes he just, everything he puts it he all up of. against the wall and sees right. what sticks. Right, and, and but that's part of the magic of it is that sometimes he creates just weird things like this that are really fun. Well, the, I kept seeing. First off, their isolation in this is really weird. I don't know what's happened to the rest of the world. Like I don't get why everybody has been. Is everybody else dead? But then also, I kept throughout this film just finding way easier solutions to their problems. <laughs> right, and one of them was just like, well, good, just go run into the forest. Cars can't go in the forest. <laughs> do that, yeah. and they're surrounded by forest it's everywhere. Bison yeah, I, I mean, I, but like they don't know when it's going to end. Somehow, I think they tell us at the beginning when it's going to end. They tell us it's going to last like seven days and three hours right, and 22 right, minutes, right. but then they don't know that. All right, give me your final guilty pleasure. All right, 2012. Oh. Are you guys all happy now? I said the name of the movie. This is from a might genre. Have the, might have been the year it's from. <laughs> nope, 2009. This is from a genre that I really do love, the epic, dumb disaster movie where people of all different backgrounds and beliefs come together to survive exceedingly silly disasters. Could be sinking ship, burning hotels, ailing invasions, weather-related events, whatever. These films really got kicked up a notch in 1996 with Independence Day. And ever since, the film's been trying to top that one in both size and catastrophic events. Roland Emmerich was the genius behind Independence Day. And since that, trying to one-up himself, he sees what landmarks he can do destroy and how much of the earth can be can he vaporize in every film 2004 he made the also wonderful day after tomorrow but to me his coup d'etat is this 2009 <laughs> film 2012 <laughs> stars a boatload of great talented actors including john cusack woody harrelson danny glover to tell edgy of four thandy newton amongst others so it starts off in the year 2008 when edgy of four scientist adrian helmsley finds out that there's a huge molten event coming soon that will be catastrophic to the earth and potentially annihilate mankind he finds this out by science 
<laughs> he notifies President Danny Glover, and thus the plot is set in motion. Cut to the year 2012, and down in his luck sci-fi author Jackson Curtis, driving limos to make ends meet, and on his way to pick up his kid that he shares custody with his ex-wife. Through some smarts and sci-fi discussions, deduction skills, Jackson stumbles across a top-secret government facility where they're prepping for the upcoming Doomsday event, and aided by nutty conspiracy theorist Woody Harrelson, in, he finds... In his worst performance of all oh, time. It's, yeah, it's pretty rough. Or his best. No. <laughs> Jackson finds out about this catastrophe and has to figure out a way to save his family and get them on the huge, massive arcs that the government's created to survive the event. So in this movie, you see Las Vegas go down. You see the streets of L.A. bouncing and falling apart. You see a massive arc survive a Noah-esque flood. It's just awesome. Grab a big bucket of popcorn. Prepare to have your mind blown by awesomeness for two hours and 38 minutes. It's a little long. Oh, God. It's very Jeez. long. And I think why you love it is exactly why I found this to be intolerable. the most excruciating movie I've ever watched. Too much? That's a bit much. Have you uh, seen Roland Emmerich's other movies? Yeah. I haven't. They're all, <laughs> they're all this bad. But I clearly remember in high school when Armageddon came out. Oh, that was and terrible. I, my friends and I went to go see Armageddon and we walked out and said, that is the worst movie we've yeah, ever yeah. seen. I would agree that Armageddon is one of the worst movies. And up until four days ago, <laughs> that was the worst movie I'd ever seen. Seen, oh, but no, now I've seen 2012. But the reason is you're saying get a big bowl of popcorn and watch the world burn. Well, I guess I'm somewhat of an empathetic that's person. That's my family that's burning. Well, you can't get I'm, that. I'm okay. watching thousands of people die. And I understand that it's CGI, and, but I'm like watching their bodies like <laughs> fall into a pit that I mean it's yeah. it's horrifying. Yeah. And As it's, it and would be. It, Absolutely. I mean, this whole thing is horrifying. To me, like, this is one of, it sounds ridiculous, but it was like one of the scariest movies, like, visually I've seen because. Yeah, they are terrifying. Well, actually. then I drove through the mountains to come to, to Atlanta and I'm like, look out on the, you know, the overlook and I just imagine like this bubbling of the earth and, and, yeah. and everything ending. And I love it here. And like, <laughs> uh, just everybody around me dying. Y'all didn't so, see his face. Look, look, He's look, so sincere. It's, in it's that. 20. What year is it? It's 2017. It's 2018 now. We made it through. No, right. I, I, it's not going to happen. I, no, I totally understand that. But it, it could happen another year. Maybe the Mayans were wrong. But but, but I but I am totally serious, Gibby. Yeah, I, I, know, I, I know. This I is not a joke it. to me. Like, see, this really I, I really tell. bothered me. Yeah. I agree. Because then we cut to Woody Harrelson, and it's just pure it's comedy. Yeah. It's wacky. Mm-hmm, it's sure. comedy. We've we, That's we, a we, we cut Emmerich. to we cut to our this is, this our is people. This is a Roland Emmerich thing, and it's a Michael Bay thing too, and they're very similar in this. It is not okay. I feel like it's emotionally irresponsible for me to watch thousands of people die and then jokes right well turn your brain off totally totally yes you're right but here's the thing i always go back to the disaster film so you had armageddon deep impact came around Mm -hmm. around the same time armageddon they threatened to destroy the world nothing happens they get away and it's a happy ending it's lame it's whatever it's not the point of the movie deep impact it actually it hits right. and yeah, bad stuff happens and there are re- consequences and they have to figure that out and plan for it. And that's what 2012, that's why I love 2012 is they're not screwing around. They destroy the whole place. Yeah, except they and do they have to come up around. with creative ways in this kind of uh, sci-fi bin a little bit of what would but, we do? But I think, these but I think Jordan's and, point is that if they would just do that, it'd be gutsy and, and impressive. Oh man, it would right. be yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a powerful yeah. movie. I'm just pointing out that there's a worse version of this. But this yeah, is, okay, Armageddon so this is, this is, this is, so Roland Emmerich is one of those directors that when I see on his name on a film, he's one of the few directors I go, not watching that. Because mm-hmm. he, he has burned me multiple times. He's awful. And I think it goes to, there is something about him. He's got this disconnect from humanity where he just doesn't. This, this is my theory. because he's German. So I think Roland Emmerich, that's probably part of it. I think he was in film school and he kept reading throughout film school. People kept saying that you can't just blow things up when you watch a movie and that you have to actually have human moments and connections. And he didn't understand that. Like it didn't make sense to him. But he just kind of was like, okay, I, 
I guess I'll do that. So because he didn't know how to do it organically, he if you see throughout this, he has to just stop his movies and and then interject the obligatory moments where where people are doing what he perceives as emotion, even though it doesn't make it sense or have any real weight to it. And so Which I think it, to I, him, he watches the movie like this and goes, yeah, a bunch of people died. So what? Like I think there's, the guy might be a sociopath. I don't know. Oh, definitely. I don't think he understands empathy or anything like I, that. I don't either. But I don't think that he's completely ineffective in those emotional moments. There's a moment where the scientist guy calls his dad and his dad is on a yeah, cruise, cruise ship, ship and he knows he's never going to see his dad again. And they have this like really touching, meaningful, thoughtful conversation that I think is very close to what a loving father and son would have as a conversation. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting there not weeping, but my eyes were definitely wet. And then it probably cut to something just ridiculous. Yeah, and the, it, it's the not, Russian gangster and his right. Kids. And it, it's just it's completely irresponsible. It, it doesn't it has no respect have, for people's that, empathy and emotion. I've heard that criticism of Roland Emmerich in these particular films before. Well, Michael Bay. The Michael Bay does this exact same thing, and that's what makes well, his movie right, so aggravating. Well, no, it's it's I'm not sa- look defend this movie if you want. I'm just saying these two directors are very similar. That's my only mm-hmm. point. Here. A couple of fun facts about this. When yeah, the, let's cut let's cut to fun facts now. <laughs> when uh, <laughs> Seth Roland Rogen, Emmerich. it's because Gimme didn't rewatch it. I did. Seth Rogen turned down the role played by Chuyatel Ejiha for. <laughs> I bet there's not too many roles where those two guys are up for the same yeah, same weird. part. The other one, the ex-husband or the ex-wife's new husband, uh, played by Tom McCarthy, director mm-hmm. of Academy Award winner Spotlight, yeah, and many other great films. Also, I just found it completely unbelievable that there would be a black president. <laughs> So Especially this goes back to what Lance is guilty of at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> uh, did you find it particularly or strange at all, Gibby, that this movie essentially at its core is the same as it's complicated? It's just a divorced couple getting back together and trying to make it work. I think that's why I like both of them. Okay. Yeah. Which, by the way, as a divorced man, I cannot stand movies where the plots are divorced couples trying to make it work. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. Yeah. I will say that much like Jaws 3, there is something, well, except that I enjoy everything about Jaws 3, but my other great cinema crush is Amanda Peet. And even she couldn't make this yeah. movie okay at all for me. I thought you liked this one okay, Lance. No. Hmm. Fault. <laughs> no, That's I mean, not I, what the text said. I, I know. I'll say this. like of, his, of all of his movies, it was the least gut-wrenching for me. I'll say that. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I hated all of his movies so much. Maybe The Patriot was a little oh, less... The Patriot's Patriot. awful. No, the Patri- I hate no, The Patriot. Well, the Patriot, the Patriot gets awful. The first 30 minutes of it are actually pretty good, and then it just goes spins off into nowhere. But no, I just... Part of me, I just... I did kind of turn my brain off in this and just got a... I was just enduring it through it. I didn't enjoy it, but I, I didn't hate it as much as I hated some of his other stuff. Godzilla, Independence Day. Godzilla is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Yeah, I wouldn't have ever thought to watch that. Did he make that? Yeah, I mean, the original one back in the 90s. I like, I like Independence Day, though. I think that movie's fun. I did find the first 45 seconds of this movie to be pretty amazing. 45 seconds? 45 seconds. It's the whatever studio it is and the and the music. And the music is just so... Like, it wastes no time to, to just tell you what the music like. This is the biggest story you've <laughs> ever watched. And then it cuts to... A wide shot of the solar system. <laughs> so, you know, there's just no, I mean, the biggest opening I think I've ever seen in a movie. It's but as it, big as you can get. But it, it, in no way did it like ease me into it or like yeah. give me something to hold there's on no to. No subtlety. Friday, October 19th, 5.07 p.m. Got to tell you, though, kind of fun in a really dumb way regarding mm. 
2012. Ooh, Must have been proof. a lot of Percocet. He's, he's got you I there. Think I, I, I will say I was drugged up pretty heavily <laughs> during that. All right. Uh, what are you guys excited about? Uh, there's a Netflix show that came out called Haunting of Hill House, which I've actually already watched it. I'm excited about watching it again. I loved it. Wow. Again. A show again. You have too much time on your hands. Mm-hmm. Well, since this is a Guilty Pleasures episode, I'm going to go ahead and talk about music. There is a band. Uh, occasionally, band. you could be surprised by a band. And One so there's this band. It's good. 21 Pilots, which I'd always oh, thought was kind of... Gibby. And see, Jordan does that. I'm with you. I kind of like yeah, them. They're, and I always they're terrible, thought, and I kind of like them. Then I listen to this new album, and I'm like, this is quite good. Yeah. And it deals with like insecurities and depression and faith and disbelief and stuff. And I was actually surprised by... Oh, cool. Who wrote it for him? The level. Tyler Joseph, <laughs> the main guy, writes all his stuff. <laughs> Like it's, I think that I know you mock no. it, and I know Jordan would hate it. And it's a weird genre. They they don't have a genre. There's some electro and hip hop and reggae and all in there. There are just, occasionally bands that I want to hate so yeah, hard because they them. look so stupid, and then I right. end up kind of liking them. Yeah, and I was surprised thing. by you, this. You, if anybody out there thinks that me and you guys disagree on movies, <laughs> it doesn't even begin yeah. when to compare with how much we disagree about music. About music. <laughs> All right, I'm going to say I'm reading this book right now that is blowing my mind. It's called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind by a guy whose name I would mispronounce if I did it. But he also did a sequel book that's about the history of future humankind. But yeah, it literally takes you through the very beginning of humans and the different species of, of humans that existed and kind of how we became who we are and why. And it is fascinating and mind-blowing and really uh, eye-opening. Oh, was he there? Yeah, Jordan, he was there. <laughs> I'm also very excited about a book. My friend, Sabrina Oramark, who has put out several books of poetry over the last... Sabrina Oramark? Ora, Ora, Mark. She just put out a book of stories, and I have only read the first one, and it completely floored me. She's just... She has an imagination like few writers I've I've ever read, and uh, but yet so experimental is probably not the right word because I, I think it gets overused, but like really strange, crazy stuff, but that is grounded in some real touching and emotional through lines, and it's the that first story just blew me away. So I'm really excited to read the rest, and uh, you know they're short stories, so love a good short story. All right, guys, no. thanks for listening. Oh yeah, I forgot we got to say goodbye. We well, appreciate it. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Let us know how your list differs at, at fightaboutfilm on Facebook and Twitter or email us at fightaboutfilm at gmail.com. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Four Friends Fight About Film is produced by the Brothers Ray in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was recorded and edited by Jordan Noel. Hi. My name is Stephen King. I've written several motion pictures, but I want to tell you about a movie called Maximum Overdrive, which is the first one I've directed. Wow. What in the dickens is going on around here? A lot of people have directed Stephen King novels and stories, and I finally decided if you want something done right, you ought to do it yourself. Who was driving it? I don't know. Curtis! It's coming after us! It was my first picture as a director. And you know something? I sort of enjoyed it. What is going on? I don't know! 
I just wanted someone to do Stephen King right. You want a war? You got one. I just want to get the hell out of here. So come and spend some time with me and my friends at the Dixie Boy. Spend some time in the dark. Please don't let okay. me in the dark. I'm gonna scare the hell out of you. And that's a promise. You're gonna get us in an awful lot of trouble, man. We already in trouble. Maximum terror. Jesus coming in here. Maximum king. Maybe tomorrow will be our world again. Dino De Laurentiis presents Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive. Candle is burning and tables are turned.
Oh, get out! Thank you for listening.